welcome, Neil. from our very own studio above a pool table in a bar. This is hell, and on this week's hell, we'll have a follow-up on Turkish elections, which challenge the power of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. We'll talk reparations and what they reveal about presidential hopefuls and their policies on race. We'll have another electoral follow-up, this one on our very own vote here in Chicago that led to the first black woman lesbian mayor in city history. I'll explain what that we're doing something on this week's show that we've never done before here in the 23 years of airing This Is Hell. And all that happens in only the first two hours of this week's hell. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996. Yes, this is hell. Here's this week's hell. On Sunday, March 31st, the people of Turkey went to the polls to vote in what was seen as a referendum on President Recep Erdogan, whose far-right authoritarianism and failing economy has caused discontent among the voting public. Our first guest this week, live from Ankara, Turkey, will be returning guest Max Zerngast, the political scientist, journalist, and independent writer who co-wrote the Jacobin article, Daylight in Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan's party lost significant ground in Turkish elections. That doesn't mean the slide toward fascism is over, but there's a bigger opening for democratic and socialist forces than there's been in years. See, Erdogan's AKP party lost, so you'd think this is a victory over the far right. Problem is, the even farther right did real well in the election, so this is no win for the Turkish left. This is a follow-up to our interview we did with Max on our most recent live broadcast about an article he had written prior to Turkey's vote. That Jacobin story was prophetically headlined, Discontent is Brewing in Erdogan's Turkey. You can find Max's writing at jacobinmag.org. Max was arrested in Turkey last year for belonging to a terrorist organization, although the organization is no longer organized and was never labeled a terror group. His first hearing since being released from prison in December is tomorrow. You can follow Max's case on Twitter at hashtag FreeMaxZerngast and at FreeMaxZerngast. And you can follow Max directly on Twitter at MaxZerngast. That's Z-I-R-N-G-A-S-T. Following Max and throughout the show, we'll be getting you caught up with listener feedback. Email us any comments or questions or suggestions on the show to chuck at thisishell.com. Then we'll have another returning guest, and they'll be discussing something I've never thought we would ever discuss here on This Is Hell, reparations for the ancestors of victims of slavery, who themselves are still victims of slavery today. Reparations for the, sorry, descendants, ancestors. Why did the word ancestors jump my head? Reparations for the descendants of victims of slavery, who themselves are still victims of slavery today, may actually become part of the national political debate during the presidential nomination and election campaigns. I seriously thought I would never see the day when slave reparations 
were being debated by presidential hopefuls. But it's happening and it's dividing the Democrats, revealing each candidate's position on race. We'll have back on our show journalist, political activist, and radio host Glenn Ford, the executive editor of Black Agenda Report, who posted the column Reparations means global social transformation. Glenn is co-founder of America's Black Forum, a nationally syndicated weekly news broadcast that started in 1977 and is one of the longest running U.S. syndicated television series. Glenn has been appearing on This Is Hell for at least the last 16 years. His most recent appearance was last November when we talked with Glenn about his just posted column, The Great Unblackening, The Corporate Project to Erase Black People, from politics. Glenn is co-host of Black Agenda Report with Nellie Bailey. Find all Glenn's writing and audio at blackagendareport.com. Follow Black Agenda Report on Twitter at BLK Agenda Report. And follow Glenn on Twitter at Glenn Ford B-A-R. After Glenn, we're going to talk to somebody, I believe we're going to be talking to somebody from BYP100, the black youth activist group here in Chicago, about the Chicago mayoral election. However, while we confirmed that we would have somebody from BYP100 on today's show, we still, as of this moment, do not know who that person is going to be or if they'll actually make it. So we'll find out in a little bit, but whoever it is, we're hoping they'll give us their take on the first black female lesbian mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, who won the April 2nd runoff against Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle by a landslide. There's an assumption that, therefore, if uh, you know Lightfoot is black and a woman and gay, she must be some sort of radical progressive who can't wait to get the Chicago police in line and is poised to destroy Chicago's generations-long political machine. Problem is, there's nothing suggesting that assumption is correct, and Lightfoot's history suggests that that's probably just the opposite of what I just said. We'll find out what Lori Lightfoot is really all about when we hear from a member of BYP 100. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry and Leo O'Connell. Alex, what's new by you? Uh, I think I have accordion lung. That sounds gross. It's better than yesterday. Yeah. You told me you had bagpipe lung. Yeah, it's, it's, is that better or worse? I don't know. I, I think I'm down to two chords uh, when I'm wheezing at night. Uh, as long as you don't have bellows lung, I think that you're pretty good. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and despite it being 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday, Alex has this week's hangover cure, and for you people listening on WNUR... I'll explain in a moment. This week's hangover cure is curry chips. In an article at Ireland Before You Die, which is <laughs> ominous, headlined, Ireland's 10 Favorite Hangover Foods, writer Erica Sanger states, I'm pretty sure curry chips, what we call fries here in the U.S., are not a national dish in China, but in Ireland, it is a regular order at the Chinese takeaway and the perfect hangover cure. In Ireland, a takeaway is what we call to-go or pick-up food in the U.S. Sanger continues... Perhaps better eaten in the evening, they not only soak up the remnants of alcohol in your system, but they can also be used as a ceremonial celebration that you made it through the day without liver failure. The chips provide the essential carbs, while the taste of curry sauce gives enough flavor to kickstart your taste buds again. Not to mention having the deep fried chips soaked in curry sauce makes them a whole lot easier to trick that dreaded gag reflex. So that, yeah, that's a way to make fries unappetizing. <laughs> that makes this week's hangover cure curry chips. Curry chips. Actually, that sounds pretty damn good right now. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. This 
is hell. And this week, it's easy to assume this truly is God's favorite radio show because there is no way we could be doing what we are doing right now if there wasn't some kind of divine intervention, or at least the incredible support of our subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. So this is where it gets kind of complicated, but it really isn't that hard of a thing to grasp. Just bear with me for a moment as I try to explain how all we are doing is simply bending the limits of time and space. For instance, right now, if you are hearing my voice, and it is Tuesday afternoon, just a bit after 2 p.m. Chicago time, you are listening to our podcast that is being streamed live exclusively for our Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Immediately following this live stream, we'll post the show in its entirety at patreon.com slash thisishell. So if you miss any part of today's show, you have to leave your phone or computer, you can always go to thisishell.com or patreon.com slash thisishell and hear the whole episode at your convenience. Now, if you are listening to This Is Hell, in its normally scheduled time on Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Chicago time on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago's sound experiment, you are hearing the first ever recorded live edition of This Is Hell. And we're doing the show this week not from WNUR's palatial studios, but our own unfinished, incomplete, still-needing-to-be-fixed studios provided by you, our subscribers on Patreon, and all the people who supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. This could not be happening without you and your unbelievable contributions, your sucker, from those who gave us couches and chairs and tables and recording equipment and gig racks and phones and headphones and microphones and phone, phone, phony phones, and those who volunteered their labor or provided it at lower cost because they believe in what we're trying to do. We couldn't have done any of this without all your help, and we literally cannot thank you enough. A little over four years ago, when we were in the midst of converting a room in my home into a remote studio for broadcasting, streaming, and podcasting, something unexpected happened. We had already bought the furniture, the carpeting, and rug padding for sound insulation, and we're about to start hardwiring the room for production. We had actually done some of the hardwiring, adding a new outlet. That's when we were offered a space, this space, to do the show that was not in my home, an apartment above a bar that had, let's say, a problematic history with tenants. To be honest, I didn't care where the new studio would be as long as it was not in my home. Working out of your place kind of sucks. You can make your own schedule without the boss looking over your shoulder, which means you get to be naked as much as you want. You can watch porn whenever you have the time. You can get high all day while getting caught up on all those terrible, horrible 1990s sitcoms you never wanted to watch in the first place. Yes, it's true. Friends was never funny. If anything, it was a dramatized, depressing docuseries about white privilege, which fueled the gentrification of Manhattan and excluded all people of color from the city. But the problem with working out of your home is you are always at work. Let's say you work at home and you're enjoying a lovely evening watching a movie with your loved one and suddenly you need another beer. You get up, walk down the hallway to the kitchen to get a cold one out of the fridge, 
and you have to walk right by your work office door. If it's open, you see all that work waiting for you and the bliss of relaxation is washed away by a tidal wave of deadline anxiety. Anxiety that just won't go out with the tide, but lingers in tide pools of depression as you try to go back to your movie and escape the reality that awaits down the hall. If the door to your home office is closed, it's still your office door standing there, staring at you blankly, waiting for you to succumb to its silent demands that gnaw at your soul. So when we got a chance to have a space anywhere else to do the show, we jumped on it. We weren't allowed to tell anyone for a while. Yes, we actually embargoed the exciting news that we were getting a space for a studio and office. You may remember we teased the big news for several months leading up to a huge celebratory party where we announced that we would be moving into a studio above a pool table in a bar. And it was and is big news because this is going to make a bigger and better This Is Hell. Hell, it already has with us doing Patreon podcast each week in addition to the weekly show on WNUR. I know some shows get multi-million dollar firehouses in Manhattan for their broadcasts, but this is hell, so we get a room above a pool table in a bar, which is significant for me because my father was born in Detroit on Jefferson Avenue in his parents' apartment in his mother's bed, which was in a bedroom above a pool table in a bar. So the Mertz family is really come a long way in the last century, from living above pool tables in a bar to doing a radio show above one. Now that's intergenerational progress, I think. And, fa- and family is one of the reasons we are recording this week's show live. For the past 23 years, I have not been able to engage in any family activities that occur on weekends because the radio show is on Saturday mornings. It's also four hours, nonstop, no commercials, no breaks at all, so it's incredibly exhausting, which leaves me no energy to socialize for at least 48 hours after the show ends on Saturday afternoons. Due to the scheduling of a Saturday morning radio show, I've missed a lot of family functions, from birthdays to marriages to christenings to anniversaries to recitals to midsummer fests to funerals and everything in between. Aside from the family get-togethers, I also have been unable to hang out with my friends or even meet new ones. Often the only time people have free is on the weekend, and with my weekend spent doing the show and recuperating from it, that means many of my friendships have sadly faded. However, None of this mattered to me because I believe in, I'm completely committed to what we are trying to do here on This Is Hell, which is bringing you the information, the views, the perspectives, and opinions from those who actually know what they're talking about. But what they're talking about does not want to be heard by the mainstream news media. From Fox to MSNBC and from the New York Times to the Washington Times, right to left, no news outlet wants to discuss what we confront each week, which in a nutshell is the white supremacy of capitalist imperialism. Can't really be summed up better than that. But here's the weird thing. People around me are aging. It's kind of fascinating. I never noticed it before, but suddenly the old people in my family are getting really, really old to the point that they can no longer travel long distances. And that's why we're recording this week's show live and rebroadcasting it on Saturday in its entirety for all our listeners, because this weekend I'm doing exactly what you'd think I'd be doing in the middle of April, nearly a month after the first day of spring. I'm going to visit family to celebrate Christmas. We had scheduled a visit this 
part of our family around the holidays, but really old people get really sick really often, so we had to reschedule and reschedule and reschedule, and we finally landed on this coming weekend. And now that we have our own, although incomplete, studio, it still has a horrible echo that you can probably hear that needs soundproofing, which was supposed to be delivered this week but has been delayed a week, we still need another computer for me here in our studio, and we need to do all sorts of fine-tuning of the entire studio in general. But we can actually record whatever we want during the week so we can give you more fresh hell. The plan all along has been to reward your support with more content, more hell, even on weekends when I have to take off for family and social obligations. And just prior to uh, today's show, I found out that uh, my nephew's wife died this morning. Uh, my nephew was on his way to get a CT scan because he was having headaches. They were in the hospital uh, elevator. My nephew's wife had a heart attack in the hospital elevator and passed away this morning. So it's possible that on the 20th you will be hearing yet another one of these broadcasts as I might yet again be out of town for a funeral. Instead of best of shows, whenever we schedule a show off, we'll give you live recorded content from during the week. Yes, we will still broadcast on WNUR, Chicago Sound Experiment, and we are looking forward to celebrating our 25th anniversary on WNUR, which happens in July of 2021. We will still air abbreviated shows on Lumpen Radio on Chicago Southside and on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho. We will still create unique content each week exclusively for you, our Patreon subscribers. But soon we will be able to give you more hell all week long. We'll also be able to have full control over the studio, for better or worse. This means that if something doesn't work, we don't have to put in a work order from a form at the School of Communications, which then has to be approved by the university. Instead, we can just fix it ourselves. It took years for the work order to go through in fixing talkback at the station, the function where I can talk to Alex without the listening audience hearing it on air. In other words, if you can't understand a guest due to their phone connection, we'll actually be able to address that in our new space without having to ask a technician who probably won't listen to us. Any technical shortcoming is not the fault of anyone at the station, at W1NUR. It's simply an aspect of being a tiny part of a huge institution like Northwestern University. In this day and age, we can't be dependent here at This Is Hell upon only one outlet anymore. While I'm certain that everyone at the school wants WNUR around forever, you never know when that will change. A radio station is an expensive thing to maintain physically and legally. With anyone being able to podcast, access to airtime is no longer in such high demand. Why drag your ass down to a radio studio when you can take your laptop and microphone out to the garage or down in the basement and do your own show? Podcasters don't even have to go through what can be a very humiliating vetting process of being good enough to be on air at a radio station. We here at This Is Hell need to make certain that if anything happens, we have our own studio to continue manufacturing dissent for you each and every week. Whether you are listening to our live stream on Tuesday for Patreon subscribers or you are listening to our Saturday morning over-the-air broadcast on WNUR of our first ever pre-recorded live show, or you are listening to our podcast next week after we share it on social media, whatever format you are listening to our show right now and remember the one thing that will never change is this is hell 
Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, a follow-up on Turkey's recent vote that did not go well for the president of Turkey, President Recep Erdogan. We'll have a discussion on reparations for the descendants of slavery. We'll have another follow-up, this one on Chicago's mayoral election that's not going to make us supporters of new Mayor Lori Lightfoot very happy. We'll also have, uh, let's say, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. We'll continue our series on Beto O'Rourke's wacky writing under the name Psychedelic Warlord from the late 1980s. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell, Alex Jerry and Leo O'Connell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity and talk radio so clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Turkey recently had an election that many view as a referendum on the government of President Recep Erdogan. Here to to tell us how the vote went and what it means for the future of Turkey. Returning to This Is Hell live from Ankara, political scientist, journalist, and independent writer who co-wrote the Jacobin article, Daylight in Turkey, Erdogan's party lost significant ground in Turkish elections. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Max. Hi, Chuck. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, great to have you back on the show, sir. Tomorrow is your hearing for being arrested and jailed on charges uh, that you... It's on Thursday, actually, on Thursday. On Thursday. So when you, uh, when you have the, the show uh, on, it will already be over, so... Right. Uh, so, uh, but it's coming up on this Thursday. Uh, you're having yeah. your hearing for being arrested and jailed on charges that you are or were a member of a terrorist organization that, yeah, as exactly. you mentioned on our most recent live broadcast, is neither terrorist organization and that the group was never listed as terrorist by the Turkish government and apparently disbanded sometime in the mid-1990s. One aspect we only touched on uh, briefly in the last time we talked was the reaction by your home country of Austria. What has been the response by the Austrian government? Do you do they see you as some left-wing troublemakers? So they are ambivalent at best, or are they using this as a rallying cry for nationalism? Well, I, w- I, I feared that they would uh, do the second, uh, actually, when I was in prison, but uh, I think it was the public pressure that uh, led them to support me to some extent, at least in public statements, and, I mean, we don't know exactly what happened, but we have some indications that they, uh, well, did meet with uh, Turkish officials uh, in order to at least get my conditions uh, improved or get me out of prison. So, I mean, we have to grant it them, but I, I'm not sure um, how much it really was or what they, uh, what they did. But in public statements, they, uh, you know, were... Not really fiercely, <laughs> but diplomatically in support of me. But uh, the main reason for that was the large support, the solidarity campaigns, um, the media uh, that was la- largely supportive of me. Uh, yeah, I think that was the main reason for that. Well, Max, when you, uh, after your hearing is done on Thursday, we hope to have you back on in the near future right afterwards so we can talk to you about what happened. You write in your new article following Turkish elections nine days ago, on Sunday, March 31st, Turkish citizens went to the polls for the seventh time, seventh time in five years. While only municipal offices were at stake, the country's slide toward fascism under President Erdogan's government has turned every election, no matter what level, into a pivotal contest. In the article you wrote prior to the vote, you called this a referendum on Erdogan, despite the fact that this was not a presidential election. So for people here in the U.S., 
Was this a referendum on Erdogan akin to the 2018 congressional elections that could be viewed as a referendum on President Trump? Because Trump lost his Republican Party's control over the Congress while expanding it barely within the Senate. So how much influence did Erdogan lose to the Grand Nationalists in the Grand National Assembly, Turkey's parliament? Well, I think it's even more so because uh, the name uh, Erdogan stands for a model. It stands for a model of economic development. It stands for a model of politics. You know, for better or for worse, uh, this man is in, in, in government as a, uh, the prime minister and then as the president for 17 years. He has been a very influential politician before as the mayor of Istanbul since 19, 1994. So he is uh, a strong figure in Turkish politics for, uh, for 25 years at least. And uh, so this is even more than the congressional elections. I think it's not just about, um, how should I say, like legal and administrative balance of powers, right? Because uh, that would be what is, you know, also not 400% in the United States that's the case, but more so than in Turkey, because in Turkey we cannot speak of uh, a normal bourgeois democracy, let's put it this way. Um, so what is the question was actually the whole model that the name Erdogan represents. Um, how much influence has he lost? Well, to some extent, he hasn't lost any influence because he is still the president. And according to the, uh, the presidential system that he pushed through in the last two years uh, with a new constitution and all, uh, basically uh, bundles most decision decisions with the president, uh, most powers with, him, with the president, at least uh, those decisions of some significance, that's what, that's what, this way. So he hasn't, at least at the first glance, he, he hasn't lost any influence in that sense. But uh, Turkish politics is m about more than just, you know, who is the president, who is the prime minister. I, actually, there is no prime minister anymore. Who is the mayor of Istanbul or whatever? It's about the, the alliances of various factions uh, within the state and uh, factions of capital with state uh, factions, let's put it this way. And since the way the elections went, it is clear that this was a loss for the AKP, uh, Erdogan's party, and himself. And this might force him to take a step back in some of politics or to form new alliances in order to keep uh, on his course. So how much has Erdogan then, through the constitutional referendum, uh, through his consolidation of powers in the, within the presidency, through even getting rid of the prime minister of the parliament, how much has he even potentially permanently insulated himself from any political challengers? Well, I mean, in order to do that, in order to push uh, all that through, he had to form several alliances. Some are more visible, like the one with the openly uh, you know, ultra-nationalist, fascistic uh, MHP. Um, some are more covered within various groups, within the police, uh, the army, uh, and other factions, the jurisdiction and all that. So uh, in order to get where he is right now, he had to form a lot of alliances. So he's not actually the strong man, the lone decision-maker, like he is sometimes portrayed to be. Uh, especially in Western media. So what do we lose in our understanding of, of Erdogan when we see him as this authoritarian figure who cannot be challenged? Well, first of all, we, we lose the perception that he can be challenged, actually, and he is challenged uh, from within the elites. 
but also from a blow from the popular masses. Uh, the other thing that we lose is that uh, we might think that Turkey will be a wonderful, nice, democratic country if only Erdogan wasn't there, if only he wasn't president, right? But uh, what we always argued was that this is not exactly the case. So uh, if even if he should be, you know, removed from office somehow or at some point actually voted out of office, we don't know how, how that would go down, but uh, whenever that happens, uh, this wouldn't be a, you know, blooming democracy uh, in, the, in any genuine sense. Uh, the opposition isn't so much different um, in many regards. Uh, but even though I say this, of course, I think that the success or partial success of the opposition is important because it deepens the crises of the elites, of the ruling classes. It shows that there's a deep discontent uh, within um, the popular masses, the population. And this opens up the space for much more progressive uh, initiatives. You write that the AKP lost power to the opposition and to its main ally. For Erdogan's AKP, what does it mean to lose power to your main ally, the centrist Republican People's Party? If you want change, why vote for an Erdogan ally? It's the MHP, actually, not the CHP. The CHP is the main opposition party. Um, they lost power to both, that's true, because uh, the CHP was able to win uh, the mayoral election in most of the large cities. Uh, Ankara, Adana, Mersin, Izmir is uh, a stronghold of the CHP, any of the CHP any, anyhow, but the other cities, they won from either the MHP or the AKP, which formed an alliance anyway. So, But most importantly, Istanbul. However, uh, I need to underscore that there is still no decision yet uh, on the elections in Istanbul. It was very clear that the AKB had to give up on the capital Ankara, where I'm right now, because the, the difference uh, with which the opposition took the election was just too big. In Istanbul, however, it was a, you know, it was so close a result. It's, we talk about, you know, a couple of thousand uh, votes in a city that holds at least 16 million people with about 10 million voters. So it's, it's really very close. And Istanbul is such, so huge and so economically and culturally, symbolically important. Also, it is the city where the, the rise to power of President Erdogan began as the mayor of Istanbul in 1994. So uh, they are not willing to give up that city. And uh, as we also said, I mean, now that the opposition has won, we shouldn't uh, fall into the illusion that those elections were democratic in any sense. They were not any more or less democratic than uh, early elections. Um, there was a lot of pressure on the opposition. Uh, the whole media is under control of the, of the regime. Uh, the whole state apparatuses, police, uh, army, and all that is in control of the regime, and they were used uh, to that extent. Uh, and we, we don't know what happens at the voting booths, actually. But this time, they were faced, especially in Istanbul, with an opposition that was not willing to back down uh, when the first threat of the government, of the president, uh, came. Um, the new mayor of Istanbul, I call him that way, even though he's not officially the mayor, and he might lose, officially lose out the elections because they might pull off some tricks that he, uh, he still loses or they have a re-election. 
So right now we are talking about the re-election of Istanbul, actually. Um, the mayor, the new mayor, Ekrem Imamoglu, uh, was very uh, steadfast and decisive in, election, in the election night. So when there were no clear results, uh, but something happened, right? And this is always the same in Turkey. You know, it might be difficult to understand in the West. When the election results first pop up, uh, they always start with like 70, 80% AKB, government parties, whatever it is. In, it might be the MHP in some region. And then they continuously drop. So you can watch this approaching 50% like it's a, a football match or, a, I don't know, a bicycle race. And when they were so close, it was basically had to have, I don't know, 49.7 to 49.7, at exactly 11.21, I think, in PM, they stopped announcing election results. So the official state uh, agency, news agency, uh, and the uh, High Election Council stopped announcing results uh, for hours. <laughs> and we don't know what happened there. Uh, probably... There were meetings of the various parties, of various state factions. Um, and at some point in the morning, uh, he, he actually spoke the whole night. I think he spoke 12 times, the, the new opposition mayor, 12 times throughout the night. And he was very clear that he would not back down. And sometime in the early morning hours, he announced himself the new mayor. He said, I, he, I, don't, I didn't want to do that myself, but the numbers in our hands are very clear. And uh, since no one else is doing it, uh, the official institution of the state is not doing it, so I have to do it. And then the interesting thing happened. The official state institution, the High Election Council, followed suit and also announced that he was leading up. He, they didn't announce him the winner uh, just yet, but they said, yes, according to our numbers, he's up. And also they criticized the state-led agency. Normally they're working hand-in-hand. Uh, so that was clearly a rupture within various factions within the state, within various institutions, which showed that this time uh, this blow to the regime led to some confusion. And now they are trying, what they're doing now is they're trying to cover up the confusion. They rallied their forces again, trying to win back Istanbul. They had a recount of the votes, of some of the votes. Uh, that didn't suffice. And now we're talking about uh, redoing the election, actually. What does the self-proclaimed new mayor of uh, Istanbul, standing up to Erdogan, what does that reveal about the state of Erdogan's power? Well, I think uh, what it mostly reveals is it's not uh, this new mayor's individual courage. Uh, I think there's some, uh, you know, some form of power block, some form of faction within the elite they're supporting him. And it looks like it is the big capital, uh, finance capital, especially the capital, uh, very closely linked to the United States and the European Union. That's what it appears to be. So as you know, uh, we have a deep economic crisis in Turkey. Uh, the United States uh, and the European Union and international capital will use that crisis as a leverage to force the president and the regime to do what they want. And also the messages that the president uh, sent already in election night uh, in terms of economics was very clear. It was structural reform, uh, free market, and all that, the classical neoliberal program, because he knows he's weak on that front. And I think that the new mayor um, has the support of that group of 
capital and you know, international relations, let's put it this way. Um, because they clearly want to send a message to Erdogan that enough is enough and we need to uh, adjust ourselves to the rules of international capital. That's what big capital in Turkey also wants. Uh, that's, I think, what we should derive from that. And you write that it's not just in Istanbul. Ankara was breaking for the Oppositional Nation Alliance led by the Centrist Republican uh, People's Party, or CHP, and Istanbul was trending the same way. Then the flow of election data stopped, and Erdogan and the AKP's candidate for Istanbul mayor uh, delivered triumphant speeches, with the latter proclaiming victory in Erdogan while remaining vague about Istanbul and Ankara ex exuding confidence. It seemed Erdogan might be stealing the election in front of our eyes, just as he's done in recent years. What has been, what was the reaction to Erdogan stealing elections in front of Turkey's eyes, just as it has in years past? Are people just so used to it now that they kind of just shrugged it off? Did it lead to protests? What was the public reaction? It's now all centered in Istanbul. Actually, there's a lot of problematic results in many provinces, but they are not, they're small and basically fight has been given up on that. But um, is everything is centered on Istanbul because clearly the regime wants to take it back. And we have been, there's been days past of vote counting and announcements from all sides. Actually, uh, President Erdogan and, the, and his mayoral candidate for Istanbul, they have been, um, you know, revealing uh, huge banners, uh, thanking the people for electing them, you know, proclaiming themselves to be the winners of the election. But uh, the opposition is very careful, and people are you know, in the, in, the, in the places where the votes are count, they don't sleep or they sleep on the, 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 the votes, actually. There they have some boxes where uh, all, you know, the, the cards are in. They, people are sleeping on top of them in order to protect them. They clearly have a very good uh, protection system by now. Uh, but mostly, and I want to emphasize this, the outcome will be decided by social struggle. Uh, the, the outcome will not be the vote counting. The vote counting might very well be just an, an instrument to gain time for the regime in order to regroup and make a new plan. This has happened before. It might happen this time. Uh, so we can never be assured that the regime might not, you know, uh, you know m m make a move on those results, make a move on democracy, you know, that, that might be all sorts of uh, tricks and, and I don't know, whatever. Uh, because the victory of the opposition is not decisive. In overall votes, the regime still has closely the majority of the votes, like 51.5%. So uh, at the moment, we are really in a crisis, in a hegemonic crisis, in a political crisis, in a state crisis, in a legitimacy crisis on top of the economic crisis, uh, a multiple crisis in Turkey. And this cannot be resolved easily one way or the other. So the opposition is not just like taking the country by storm and will be easily able to govern. And by opposition, I mean, what we mean mostly is a form of restoration, a more liberal, soft approach uh, in, you know, uh, in close contact with international capital, a more inclusive language and rhetoric, and uh, they talk about, um, I don't know, uh, the rule of law, kind of the reinstitution of the rule of law. This is also the language that the new mayor of Istanbul speaks, and he's obviously very skilled in that regard. 
So this would be a restoration. And on the other hand, we have the, the more you know, fascistic uh, approach, uh, oppressive, repressive approach. But there is no decisive winner there. And it's precisely because of that constellation, that's our argument, there are uh, openings for a genuine democratic alternative for the popular forces, for a democratic republic. How much do those kind of liberal reforms that you were just talking about, how much do those kind of liberal reforms challenge the system that Erdogan has put in place? Does it just reform it, fix it, and reinforce it so it can be in power stronger than ever before? Well, that's not clear yet. I mean, Turkish capital uh, is not per se against the presidential system. Uh, in, in, in fact, it probably prefers the presidential system where you have a very strong central authority that can make decisions in favor of capital. Uh, however, as it currently stands, um, it might have been you know, gone too far, uh, structured around one person, and there are many things that aren't very clear, like, like do we have ministers right now? Do we have ministries? Officially, we do, but what are their functions exactly? And so on and so on. There's numerous questions uh, in the current, because the system is currently transformed. The Constitution is currently rewritten. So uh, there's no set system in place. And clearly, uh, with the, with the uh, slight of the, of the Turkish lira, the currency, and the open outbreak of the economic crisis, capital is very upset and uh, is seeking for alternatives. It did so before, but it is even more uh, so uh, now. When we had you on before the election, you were on to talk about your article, as we mentioned earlier, discontent is brewing in Erdogan's Turkey. Was the discontent then, I mean, if you look at the election results, was the discontent more on the right than the left? If the far right did so well in the election, is the opposition to Erdogan that he wasn't right wing enough? that he needs to double down on neoliberalism and militarism? Well, as it currently stands, I mean, there is basically a, a country split in half. It is the camp of Erdogan and those around him, his allies, and there's the camp against him. And this is basically standing at 50-50 or 51-49 for some years. So whoever wants to vote against the current regime uh, is voting for the opposition. And the opposition might just be centrist or even uh, coming from a more nationalist background. But this is clearly, uh, I mean, uh, at the voting groups in local elections, there is not really much return. And this uh, result is clearly an expression of uh, the discontent that we described. People voted for the CHP, uh, which is not very radical. Uh, on the contrary, it's a state party. It's the state party um, that founded the Turkish Republic. Um, but now it's an opposition party for years. And now it became uh, kind of the, the institution for the expressed anger of the population. But uh, we have to be very careful. Not all of these voters are CHP voters. A crucial role has been played by the Kurdish movement, uh, the HTP. Uh, which is the political party of the Kurdish movement, because they did not um, an announce their own candidates in most of those major big cities that went to the opposition, uh, like Istanbul, Ankara, and so on. And only if the Kurdish votes, uh, it was possible for the opposition 
to win. So the HDP, as you uh, described, are a left, are the leftist People's Democratic Party, leftist organization, yet they were allying themselves with right-wing organization and centrist organizations in order to create alliances and work together in order to unseat Erdogan. So is the message then that came from the Turkish public anyone but Erdogan? Yes and no. I mean, for the opposition, uh, that is not really, there's not really much of an alternative, I have to say that. And what the HDP did was it said, well, we have a double strategy. We want to win back our municipalities in the Kurdish parts of the, re- of the country, and we want to weaken the regime as it is, and that is the party of Erdogan and uh, the AKP and the MHP. Uh, and in order to do that, uh, we don't um, announce our own candidates, and we will support the CHP um, to some extent. You know? But also, I mean, that's politics. At the same time, you also send a message to the opposition saying, well, you are elect- elected with our votes. Don't forget that. Um, on the other hand, I mean, there's still more than, if we accept the votes as they are, there's still 51.5% uh, of the vote for uh, the, the, uh, the People's Alliance, the alliance that is left by Erdogan. So we're really in kind of a stalemate uh, at the current situation. Uh, and this stalemate will uh, prolong uh, the crisis. So there is no easy way out of the crisis, of all the, the, the multiple crises that we are faced with in Turkey. You write that the leftist HDP uh, party w- did suffer more important, uh, or some important losses, although it easily took back Diyar Barkir, Van, and Mardin. It was defeated in its mostly rural and mountainous strongholds. The HDB lost the province of Dersim to another left alliance. The party explains these defeats by pointing to high levels of repression and the tens of thousands of police and soldiers relocated to these sparsely populated areas, especially in Cernak, which tilted the race to the AKP's favor. Why is the leftist People's Democratic Party, the HDP, why is it seen as such a threat to the AKP when it seems like they don't have as much power as some of the other opposition parties? Well, the HDP is a special party in Turkey, and we have to understand it from the specific conditions here. It is the political party of the Kurdish movement, and that is why it is faced with so much repression. That is why it was not part of any of the two alliances. So it is actually not a part of the uh, opposition alliance either. But it did, uh, as I said, uh, support the opposition alliance in some places. Uh, and that has, uh, and all of this setup has to do with the specific position of the Kurdish movement, which is excluded uh, from the Turkish state. And, you know, <laughs> and it's branded as separatist, terrorist, and whatever. And the HDP is the political uh, representative of that movement, let's put it this way, or the political. Um, one political party that came out of that movement, which has, uh, you know, a, a movement that has very uh, different parts within it, operating in more than one state, actually, operating also in uh, Iraq and Syria. You write that in Erdogan's first statement and his election night balcony speech on March 31st, he argued that now that the elections are over and no one new one, no new ones are to come for four and a half years, the country needs to focus on economic and foreign policy issues, openly naming the issue of Rojava, the autonomous enclave in northern Syria, that Erdogan wants to get rid of. 
why in, then is Rojava seen as such a threat to Turkey? Because here in the West, many on the left are, I should say in the States, many on the left are praising Rojava's experiment with democracy. So why is Rojava's experiment with de- democracy, why is uh, Erdogan able to capitalize that on that as a threat to the people of Turkey? Yes, I mean, that was this, uh, the first speech uh, that he held, where he sent a double message. On the one hand, he, as I said before, uh, emphasized the economic side, reforms, free market, and all that, and no elections for four and a half years. Let me put in, um, a footnote to that. I don't think that there will be no elections for four, four and a half years. There will certainly be elections, uh, but that is obviously, officially, there's no election for four and a half years. On the other hand, he emphasized uh, a possible a military attack on the uh, Kurdish uh, parts of northern Syria, Rojava. Uh, this is, I mean, this is long the, the tragedy of the Turkish state for years. Uh, it's obviously opposed to any form of success of the Kurdish movement, of any of the various parts of the Kurdish movement in the region. So not only in Turkey, but also in the region. There has been the attack on Afrin. Uh, in January, or from January to March 2018, so just about a year ago, where one of the uh, Kurdish parts in northern Syria uh, has been invaded. And um, it fears mostly that successes of the Kurdish movement in other states, neighboring states like Syria and Iraq, will spill over into Turkey. And that threatens the whole uh, existence of the Turkish state and the whole... Uh, yeah, the, the territory of the Turkish state, which is not official policy of the HDP or even the armed wing uh, of the Kurdish movement, uh, but that is the official legitimization uh, of that politics by the state, Turkish state. Max, one last question for you. We've been speaking with Max Zerngast, political scientist, journalist, and independent writer who co-wrote the Jacobin article, Daylight in Turkey. Erdogan's party lost significant ground in Turkish elections. This is a follow-up to our interview we did with Max on our most recent live broadcast about an article he had written prior to Turkey's election. Discontent is brewing in Erdogan's Turkey. You can find all of Max's writing at jacobinmag.org. This is Max's fourth appearance on This Is Hell. Max first appeared on our show back in July of 2016. You can follow Max's case, which has a hearing on April 11th, that's this Thursday, on Twitter, at hashtag free Max Zerngast or just at free Max Zerngast. And you can follow Max directly on Twitter at Max Zerngast. That's Z-I-R-N-G-A-S-T. As always, Max, one last question or a final question for all of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. What would Turkey be like if the far-right nationalist movement party, the MHP, took power, how would it be different? How would it be any, maybe even worse under the MHP than it is under Erdogan's AKP? Yeah, well, it might be worse, yeah. But, I mean, we have to say that uh, the MHP is actually state party. Uh, It has its places in the Turkish state. It never grows beyond a certain extent, but it always has this, it never disappears either. So it's very closely linked to... uh, factions within the state. Also, uh, we don't know that for sure, but it seems that many important positions within the state, especially police, military, uh, intelligence, uh, are filled with MHP uh, cadres and uh, you know, people associated with the MHP. So it already is within the state, 
And many of the crimes that have been committed by the state in the past and are still committed are committed by these people in particular, but not only, of course. So, uh, yeah, it might be much worse, uh, or for certain it, might, it would be worse, but I'm not sure if that is a realistic scenario. I don't think, uh, at least as it is now, that it could be the answer to the current crisis in Turkey. Well, on that hopeful note, Max, it's always a pleasure to hear your voice. We'll be talking to you real soon to get caught up on what's taking place in Turkey and what's happening with your case on your hearing on April 11th. Thank you so much for being back on our show, Max. Thanks it's for all, having me, Chad. Always a pleasure, my friend. Yes, same here. Take care. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. Alex, tell uh, the talk back over here is all of a sudden kind of freaking out. Tell Glenn we'll start at the top of the hour if that's cool by him. Uh, so here's the deal. We just found out from BYP 100 that uh, we're going to have to reschedule them. We're hoping to have them on tomorrow's show, especially because I've already done all the research for it. It'll make tomorrow a lot more easy on me. Yeesh. So anyway, so uh, BYP 100 will be on tomorrow's show. If you are listening on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago on Saturday, it's coming right up in just a couple of hours. Reparations for the descendants of sla- victims of slavery who themselves, remember, are still victims of slavery. That's actually unbelievably become a campaign issue in the upcoming presidential primaries and potentially in the general election. We'll discuss where the candidates stand and what that reveals about their policies on race and a few with journalist, political activist, and radio host Glenn Ford, the executive editor of Black Agenda Report, who posted the column, Reparations Means Global Social Transformation. Glenn is co-host of Black Agenda Radio with Nellie Bailey. Find all Glenn's writing and audio at blackagendareport.com. It's time for listener feedback. Our first email to Chuck at thisishell.com is from Elizabeth, who writes, Dear This Is Hell, love your show, but you really let me down with your interview on February 12th with Lavinia Steinfort, ironically or not, combined with an interview of Jason Hickel. In your interview with Lavinia, you neglected to question the premise, which is that the technologies that the Green New Deal promotes, so-called clean and green technologies, are a good thing. Almost your entire discussion with Lavinia was about public control over utilities when energy production and things like road maintenance for electronic vehicles, electric vehicles, is simply the last step of a very long chain, none of which is clean or green, and most of which is how and is now and will continue to be corporate control. Now, while Elizabeth is absolutely correct, that was not why Lavinia was on the show. Lavinia was on to discuss the power of public finance, not green technology. Lavinia's point and her specialty was the Green New Deal is affordable because the way public finance works is basically you can afford anything and that was proven with the 2008 bank bailouts and subsequent events of quantitative easing. So Lavinia wasn't an expert on the technology. She was talking about the controversy over the funding of the Green New Deal. And Jason Hickel, he was on to talk about how global poverty is not decreasing despite what Bill Gates wants you to think. So I'm really not too sure what Elizabeth is getting at. I understand her larger point. Anyway, Elizabeth continues. Rather than repeat myself in this email, I refer you to an essay I wrote before listening to this episode, but which addresses your failure to connect the dots and the, uh, on capitalism and destruction inherent in the 
GND as well and the Green New Deal, as well as your failure to connect the dots more carefully between the two interviews in the same episode. Come on, guys, you can do better. Thank you. You're welcome. But I really cannot connect the dots you're trying to connect. So I checked out Elizabeth's article at medium.com called The Green New Deal. And what she argues is the Green New Deal is just a huge corporate welfare program that will spark another industrial revolution. Now, Elizabeth wrote her email weeks before our most recent interview when we talked to Duncan Tarr and Noura Usabah, who co-wrote the Commune Magazine article, The End of the Line, The Rusting Fossil Fuel Infrastructure of the Upper Midwest Connects the Poisoned Residents of Flint to the Wreckage of Alberta's Oil Sands. And Elizabeth's point was made by Duncan and Noor that the danger in new technology is reproducing more capitalism and a new generation of industrialization that would only compound the problem of climate change. Which brings us to, if not the Green New Deal, then what? And for all the criticism I have read of the Green New Deal, from lame excuses like we lack the resources to implement it, which we do, to the reasonable considerations that it could spark a new industrial revolution, I've yet to hear about or read an alternative that would be better. So if anybody listening has heard of a better plan than the Green New Deal in confronting global warming, a plan that will not reproduce the same problems that we already have, email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com and we will discuss it on the air. And that means you, Elizabeth. Fred writes to us to ask, Yo, I hope all is good in hell. I assume you guys are not a 501c3 org, but just checking in case, let me know if you are and what percentage of my Patreon donation is deductible. No worries if none of it is. I love you guys regardless of what the IRS says. Hugs. Fred. Sorry, Fred. This is hell is not a non-profit. Wish we were, but we're so non-profit, we can't afford to be non-profit. It's really expensive to make it so you can't make a profit, which is weird, but makes completely sense in this up is down, war is peace. Security is freedom world we live in here in the States. So, of course, it costs more to start a business that doesn't turn a profit than one that will. God, capitalism is so stupid. Michael has a topic suggestion that he sent to us at Chuck at ChuckAtThisIsHell.com. Chuck, I don't have a specific guest suggestion, but I do have a topic suggestion. I've been reading a lot about modern monetary theory on the Naked Capitalism website. There's quite a debate going on about its merits. I would really like to hear an interview with someone on your show about it. One of the ideas that has captured my imagination is the idea that tax revenues do not fund the federal government. As a federal employee, I am hit over the head about the need to frugal to be frugal with taxpayer funds and the need to curb federal spending. When I came across this post by Ellis Winningham explaining that taxes do not fund the government, I, I eagerly embraced the concept because I had long expected that the orthodox views on federal budgets were full of BS. Recently, I ran into an article by Randy Ray, W-R-A-Y, taking Doug Henwood, a past guest on your show, to task for his article in Jacobin that was dismissive of modern monetary theory. I was shocked at Henwood's uh, alleged sloppiness and weak argumentation before, because I can consider myself a huge Doug Henwood fan and am a very loyal listener of his fantastic podcast, Behind the News. Jacobin also published this response to Henwood's article. The story is called MMT is Already Helping by Pavlina Cherneva. 
Program Director and Associate Professor of Economics at Bard College and Research Associate at the Levi Economics Institute. The subtitle of the article is, In response to Doug Henwood's critique, Pavlina Cherneva makes the case for the analytical power and political potency of modern monetary theory. Michael adds, I also ran into some writings by Dean Baker relative to MMT. Baker does not consider himself a proponent of MMT, but does concur that federal taxes do not fund the government. Bill Black, who is supportive of MMT, suggests that the evidence of what we have seen in the current economy and past supports the predictions and assessments of MMT. Stephanie Kelton, another proponent of MMT, attempts to answer some critiques of the story. She apparently did some time as an advisor to Bernie Sanders. All of this is to request that you look into modern monetary theory as a potential topic of focus. Thanks, Michael. Really appreciate the suggestion. Uh, Alex, I think we found a person to talk MMT with. That would be uh, Bill Black. He's been on before. He's an amazing forensic economist, if you will. So let's have Bill back on the show to explain MMT. Uh, Bill was the bank investigator who discovered the savings and loan crisis of the early 80s, and I have always trusted his opinion on matters economique. We'll have more listener feedback later on this week's show. If you want to contact us and you know, possibly hear your email read on air, you can email us at chuck at thisishell.com. Message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. DM us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, unbelievably... And finally, slavery reparations have actually become an issue of debate among the presidential hopefuls. We'll also have, like I said, some more listener feedback. We'll continue our series on the insanity Beto O'Rourke was posting in the late 1980s as a member of the hacker group Cult of the Dead Cow. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell, Alex Jerry and Leo O'Connell, live from the rotting corpse that is broadcast radio. This is hell. Finally, finally, reparations for the descendants of slavery is actually becoming a point of debate among aspiring presidential candidates. I know. I was shocked, too. Here to talk reparations and what the candidates' stances reveal about their policies on race, journalist, political activist, and radio show host Glenn Ford is the executive editor of Black Agenda Report, and last and a little while ago, he posted the column, Reparations Means Global Transformation. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Glenn. Thanks for having me. Always great to have you on the show. Sorry about running a little bit late today. Uh, so you write, Reparations is not a token gesture of concern, apology, or even solidarity. It seeks justice and redress of wrongs through the transformation of a people's condition. So there's this article at Ebony a few weeks ago that quoted Duke University professor of economics William Darity Jr. recently saying on C-SPAN's Washington Journal about reparations for the African descendants of slaves and the role the issue plays in the 2020 presidential campaign. Darity said, from my perspective, reparations has three objectives. The first is acknowledgement of the injustices on the part of the perpetrators. Second is redress, which is restitution for the effects of the injustices. Third is closure, which is mutual recognition of the part of the victimized community, as well as the perpetrator, that the debt has been paid. Glenn, why is this happening now? Why are you writing about reparations? Why is Darity commenting about reparations now? Has something fantastic changed in the public debate over reparations that it's finally allowing a renewed discussion on reparations? 
Well, we've been writing about reparations when it's appropriate ever since we've been writing. The question is, why are Democratic presidential candidates talking about it? Why is the corporate media uh, talking about it? Uh, and, and there's a further question, and that is, well, what do Democratic presidential candidates' uh, opinions matter about reparations? Uh, you, clearly, uh, the Democratic presidential candidates are pandering to black America, uh, trying to show whose side they're on. And that's all to the good. Uh, there is a bill for a study of reparations. It's H.R. 40. It's uh, been in the hopper in the U.S. Uh, House uh, for decades, put forward by former Congressman John Conyers and now sponsored by uh, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee. And that sets, uh, that authorizes the U.S. Congress to study uh, the issue of reparations. And certainly every uh, presidential candidate uh, should endorse that bill. Uh, and in fact, that bill does not have a companion measure in the U.S. Senate, uh, even though the two black senators, Cory Booker uh, and Kamala Harris, say that they, in principle, support reparations. They haven't uh, submitted any legislation on the Senate side uh, to match H.R. 40 on, on the House side. Uh, our position in that article is that all that a presidential candidate uh, should be called upon to do is to support H.R. 40, the reparations study bill, and to acknowledge the debt that is owed to black America. Everything else is black America's business. Deciding what form, what shape, uh, what the price of reparations should be, what reparations should accomplish, that is the duty of black America to come up with. That is, we must have a demand, uh, and that requires a debate uh, a, a long debate uh, in the black community about reparations uh, before there can be closure that is saying the debt is paid. But it is the person who is struck who is the one uh, to cry out and make the demand, and that's us. So I don't think that it's proper uh, to ask Bernie Sanders or Kamala, well, Kamala Harris is black, but to ask any Democratic presidential uh, candidate uh, to create, uh, to offer some kind of reparations scheme to us. It's, it, that is for the black community to decide and formulate. So this is one of the things I don't really get about this, Glenn, is it just seems like it would be a, it would be tactically a good idea to support H.R. 40. And I'm, I'm just talking about being a very cynical politician. It would be tactically uh, a good idea to support H.R. 40 because it is just a commission just about studying and just trying to come up with a plan. It isn't actual reparations. So to you, what explains why, even at this most innocuous level of just studying reparations, why wouldn't people want to just be on board when it's not the actual implementation of reparations? Well, all, all of this talk shows that people are not serious about reparations at all. 
Of course there must be the study, and, and the bill is there. Uh, but uh, Kamala Harris comes out uh, with her uh, scheme that she calls reparations, which is actually no reparations at all. There's no resemblance to a reparations uh, measure. It calls for everybody under uh, in households earning under $100,000 a year to get a $500 a month uh, subsidy. Uh, uh, Cory Booker, uh, he calls reparations his proposal for baby bonds. That is, uh, bonds be issued to uh, every kid born in the United States at birth uh, with additional bonds every year up to age 18. Uh, but these are not specific to the black uh, community. Then that's not reparations at all. And so when people, and there are other uh, proposals put out by other uh, presidential candidates, but when they make these these kinds of uh, proposals, and they're not even signatories <laughs> uh, uh, to H.R. Uh, 40, they're showing that they haven't considered the issue uh, in any way. They're, they're just trying to make this uh, this, these kinds of uh, uh, statements to endear themselves to Democratic voters in this particular election. But they don't even bother uh, to endorse H.R. 40 or if they're senators uh, to uh, uh, create a companion bill on the Senate side. So it's a bunch of hogwash. It's not sincere. Yeah, and you even point out how Oprah favorite Marianne Williamson's $100 billion reparation scheme is far too stingy to repair 40 million descendants of slaves. That's $2,500 per person. How far can 2,500 bucks go toward fulfilling all of Professor Darity's reparation goals of acknowledging injustices, restitution of the inju- for the injustices, and closure, that, that, that is uh, mutual recognition of the part of the victimized community as well as the perpetrators, that the debt has been paid. How far can $2,500 go toward actually repairing racial divisions in the U.S.? Yes, in fact, it's quite insulting, isn't it? And how would uh, a 40 or 50 million people uh, descended from such horrors and living in a subordinated condition today uh, react uh, to that? Uh, it's, it's, it's insulting. But, you know, there have been all kinds of proposals on reparations, and it is a uh, very uh, complex, huge uh, undertaking, especially if you're talking about uh, transforming a whole people's uh situation. Uh, there was a proposal, I believe, out of an academic from uh, Rutgers, uh, a white guy. Uh, he, his idea was that since the greatest uh, differential in wealth between whites and blacks in this country uh, revolves around uh, the homes that they own or do not own, uh, that uh, a reparations that bestowed on black households the equivalent of the cost of a new home would go far uh, to erasing that gap. So I did uh, some little uh, on the envelope uh, calculations uh, that if a median home in the United States was about $250,000, what would the cost of that be? Uh, and it came out to uh, 2.2 trillion dollars. And I think that if most Americans uh, looked at that price tag of $2.2 trillion, they'd probably say, hell no, that's too much money. Uh, But I don't think that 
just the acquisition of a new home for every black household is transformative. So I think it's rather stingy. And in fact, all of these monetary dollar amount proposals uh, don't really fit the bill because you, none of them uh, uh, get to the question of uh, have, have, have the lives of a whole people being transformed in ways that the power relationships that plunge them into slavery and Jim Crow and an ongoing subordinate position have been forever erased. That's what closure means. And that's not even uh, uh, countable in just dollars and cents. It means a social transformation. Right. And that's what I want to get to. I'm glad that you brought that up because the Ebony article that I was citing er earlier, it also states when asked how to calculate what court and what counts as reparations, uh, Duke's Duke University's Darity said it would be dependent on the set of injustices a community faced. So first, the article explained what uh, reparations were, then how Democrats who are running for president feel about reparations, then how much will it cost and who is deserving to get reparations. And it seems every time any conversation on, on reparations comes up, one of the first things asked is, who gets how much? How much is the question of? Who gets how much? A distraction, even a purposeful distraction from whether reparations are the right thing, not only when it comes to justice, but their potential positive impact on our collective future. You know, whatever the price of uh, reparations, that is, whatever the governing power uh, is uh, asked in dollar terms, uh, demanded in dollar terms to contribute, uh, we're, we're talking about power relationships uh, here. Uh, and it really is inconceivable that the U.S. government, as now constituted, uh, would, would make the social transformations that would put the people who are in power uh, presently out of power. That is, I don't, don't see a situation in which the U.S. government as constituted, representing the powers that be that put them, uh, them in office, would alter those power relationships in ways that black folks would not be on the bottom at the end of the process. <laughs> and that's what reparations must mean, that we are not at the bottom at the end of the process. And you're right, if Joe Biden finally decides to seek the nomination, his impressive favorable ratings among blacks will likely implode under the accumulated racist baggage of a lifetime. No white man that declares, quote, I'll be damned if I feel responsible to pay for what happened 300 years ago can be trusted to comprehensively right racial wrongs. Do you think that's enough to sidetrack a presidential cam campaign? How much of an impact do you think policies on race have on who Democrats will pick for their presidential candidate. How much do you think they're really concerned about race? Oh, oh, in the Democratic uh, primary process, race is extremely important. Uh, blacks make up about a quarter of the Democratic uh, Party. Uh, and the question of how Bernie Sanders will fare in his next go-round, in this go-round, uh, has always uh, hinged on how he's going to do with black folks. Uh, Bernie Sanders 
uh, campaign uh, in 2016 was doomed uh, after the Southern primaries because black folks were not, uh, most black folks didn't even know his name. Uh, and uh, the way that black people uh, in the Democratic Party vote in primaries uh, is uh, to hitch, uh, is to throw their support to whichever candidate they feel is best uh, able to defeat the candidate of the white man's party, the Republican Party. And certainly they weren't going to support a guy uh, whose uh, name and history they weren't familiar with. But all that is, has changed now. And so the corporate Democrats, uh, knowing that Sanders is definitely the guy to beat this time around, uh, have trotted out two black senators <laughs> in, in hopes uh, that uh, that will upset uh, Sanders. So the black vote is absolutely key, especially to the corporate Democrats who are really depending upon uh, black uh, uh, on on the black vote to to stop Sanders. And that's why Cory and that's why Cory Booker and Kamala Harris are putting forward their non-reparations proposals, uh, masquerading as reparations proposals to pander to the black vote. Yet when I see on, I see this a lot on social media, Glenn, and that is that one of the reasons that you shouldn't be support, supporting Bernie Sanders is uh, for pra- practical and pragmatic and strategic reasons because he just will not garner the African American vote. How do you feel about that? But that's, uh, well, in 2020 or 2019, that's not true. Uh, Sanders is far more uh, popular among black Americans than among white Americans. Well, that's easy to be because half of white America is still uh, with Trump. Uh, but it, it does appear from the polling data uh, that Sanders is doing excellently uh, among black voters now that they know who he is. The black constituency is the most left-leaning constituency in the United States, and especially on bread and butter domestic issues, although also uh, on foreign policy uh, issues. Uh, But they were not familiar with Sanders back in 2016. Now they are. Everybody knows about Medicare uh, for all and uh, free college uh, tuition and, and such. So he's polling very well among blacks, uh, despite the fact that there are two black uh, candidates out there. And you're right, Beto O'Rourke, the great corporate hope. Now that uh, Kamal Harris and Cory Booker have failed to catch fire, admits that, quote, as a white man who has had privileges that others could not depend on or take for granted, I've clearly had advantages over the course of my life. Yet you add that Beto rejects reparations for the descendants of slaves. You continue that as far as business-friendly Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar is concerned, the race divide can be bridged simply by, quote, looking out for our whole economy, community college, one-year degrees, minimum wage, child care, making sure that we have that shared dream of opportunity for all Americans. What is missed in understanding what reparations are and what they are meant to be when reparations for slavery are lumped in with all problems of inequality, when they're they're conflated with all problems of inequality, when it is argued that everyone of a certain class, no matter their race, no matter if they're descendants of slaves or not, deserve reparations? Well, you know, I think I need to point out 
that Barack Obama's uh, position on reparations uh, was very much like the other corporatists in the Democratic Party, uh, like the senator from Minnesota uh, and like Beto. Uh, their position is that a rising tide lifts all boats. But that tide has never lifted the black boat. The black boat's always been uh, swamped and at the bottom of the bay. Uh, and no proposal that, that does not uh, uh, bring that boat up from the bottom of the bay in ways that will keep it afloat uh, in the foreseeable, uh, for the foreseeable future is a reparations policy. You write that in the absence of such a community-wide debate on reparations and black futures, non-black progressives like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, whose Green New Deal resolution displays breathtaking potential for both national transformation and community self-determination, flounders and stutters on reparations. Her instinct is towards solidarity with black Americans, but there can be no authoritative black voice without the great debate. That's the great black reparations debate. What do you mean by there can be no authoritative black voice without the great debate. Well, black folks have to have a consensus among themselves about what the shape, the form of reparations shall be. You know, we, we keep on talking uh, about uh, monetary prices uh, for reparation uh, and, and how much each household or each person is going to get, uh, but it's not been decided that that's the way uh, a reparations program would be uh, carried out. Uh, uh, certainly, if we're calling for a debate uh, among black Americans about reparations, uh, the, ultimate, the ultimate result of that debate would be the formation of representative, uh, representatives of the black uh, community to uh, present those demands uh, and to oversee the implementation of any kind of program. Uh, and it's not... not clear at, or certain at all that any reparations program in the future uh, would involve checks to individuals or to households. Uh, there, there probably would, uh, for a project of this scale, uh, have to be some kind of representative organization uh, that was set up to administer uh, black-specific uh, programs, uh, and that organization would be uh, accountable uh, not just fiduciarily uh, to whoever it got its money from, but to the people who are the beneficiaries of the services uh, that would come from it. So you're talking about uh, the formation uh, of something like a black American governing authority uh, to administer uh, resources that are in the trillions of dollars. This is a very serious affair. And for people to uh, approach it with $500 uh, stipends to go, that go to everybody uh, or stingy $100 billion payouts of $2,500 checks uh, is an insult uh, to, to the ancestors, as many reparations had the kids would say. You write at this month's South by Southwest conference, the young Puerto Rican lawmaker Ocasio-Cortez was asked about black reparations, but only succeeded in further, further muddying the waters. 
Then you quote her saying, "There are a lot, this is such an odd quote. There are a lot of systems that we have to dismantle, but it also, but it also, it does get into this interesting area of where we are as a country about identity. Because, like, what does it mean to be black? Who is black and who isn't? Especially as our country becomes more biracial and multiracial. Same thing with being Latino. Same, same thing. It brings up all these questions like passing and you know things like that. But I do think it is important that we have to have substantive conversations." about race beyond like what is racist and what is not and if someone says something is racist does that make them racist like we need to get away from talking well not that we have to get away from talking about racism it's important that we talk about race and racism but because we talked about racism so much we actually are not talking about race itself and we aren't educating ourselves about our own history to come to the conclusion that i think we need to come to that is the most garbled message i have ever heard glenn what explains this muddying of the conversation. Why can't she just simply say, yes, we need reparations for the descendants of slavery in the United States, and I would look forward to see what kind of reparations package and legislation black Americans and leadership uh, can create. Why is that that difficult? Well, because we have not had a real deep conversation about slavery and its aftermath. Uh, Obviously, an intelligent person like AOC uh, seems to be confused uh, about reparations and how to fit it in to the whole conversation about about race and ethnicity uh, in this country. Uh, So she's confused because black folks have not had the debate. When we have this debate, everybody uh, is welcome to, uh, to listen. Everybody will listen because the future of the country, what the country looks like, who runs it, who who benefits from whatever this country offers, uh, everyone will be affected. So everybody uh, should, should be interested in this uh, intra-black debate. I suspect uh, that AOC uh, is really grappling with uh, where is she uh, and where are folks who are Puerto Rican or Dominican origin, uh, other Afro-descended peoples who are uh, not uh, descended from African-American slaves, what do they uh, have to say about, or what's their stake in, besides uh, just being Americans, what's their stake in this uh, debate? And the debate gets further confused uh, by the activities of folks uh, who call themselves ADOS, uh, uh, an organization uh, backed by Yvette Carnell uh, uh, and and others who are trying to start this reparations debate uh, by uh, making it plain that uh, some folks are not included in it, uh, and that is uh, people, uh, including the sons and daughters of West Indians who emigrated to the United States, who are certainly black and live very black lives in the United States, uh, but are not uh, legally, in their view, uh, entitled to reparations from Washington, since the United States government uh, was were not their enslavers. They were enslaved by uh, the, the British authorities, uh, or if they're Martinicans by the French authorities, or if they uh, are... Uh, from the Dominican Republic uh, by Spanish uh, slaveholders. Uh, and uh, the Eidos folks have injected a, a very almost black American chauvinistic kind of 
uh, attitude uh, into this, uh, beginning the whole talk about who's not part of it, uh, and 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 that some somehow adds to the cacophony of of nonsense uh, that uh, an AOC uh, uh, can't grasp, and she comes off babbling like an idiot. Glenn, so let me just follow up on something you just said. Uh, figuring out who is not part of reparations. What do people miss? What do the people like the ADOS group that you were just talking about, what do they miss in their understanding of reparations when they see it as it should only go to a specific kind of black American who has had a certain kind of experience? What happens when this becomes exclusive and not inclusive? Well, you know, until relatively recently, uh, until uh, the last couple of decades, when we talked about black Americans, we all, uh, almost all of us, did share uh, that same history of having been enslaved in the United States uh, by a government that has had continuity and therefore responsibility and culpability since 1776. Now there's a lot of other folks here uh, who are Afro, also Afro-descended, uh, most of them uh, having been enslaved, by, but not necessarily by uh, U.S. authorities, and also Africans uh, who uh, were uh, never enslaved legally uh, by any of the European or uh, American uh, authorities. So politically, it becomes uh, somewhat more complex uh, although the legal uh, approach and and most of the uh, reparations advocating organizations have taken the legal approach but would only apply uh, to the descendants of African American slaves. But I want to say uh, before we run out of time uh, that that the major uh, reparations advocacy organizations in the United States uh, and those uh, maintain very close, intimate uh, relationships uh, with uh, African-descended people all over the world, including with governments in Africa, because uh, because the victims of of the global uh, of the of the slave trade are scattered around uh, the world and do have a, a common a common imperative to world transformation that will right the wrongs of 500 years of Western European predation around the world. It is the slave trade and colonialism that made Western Europe rich and made the United States an empire and made the rest of the world subordinate and poverty-stricken and in disarray uh, and stigmatized as inferior. So a global transformation is necessary. Uh, and I, I have no, uh, no doubt uh, that any reparations solution, any closure in the United States uh, will not only 
mean a transformation of U.S. society. It would be also dependent uh, on the overthrow of the order that came from 500 years of Western European predation in the world, and therefore would have to result in a global transformation. And so African nations and Caribbean nations are also seeking forms of reparations. And, and we're in solidarity uh, with that. And at the end of this long political struggle, uh, there will be collaboration among all the uh, reparations-seeking uh, folks around the world. How far do you think a, a kind of, like they had Af- in post-apartheid South Africa, how far do you think uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission kind of strategy or apparatus, how much does that help in the process of reparations? Well, I mean, if people are really seeking truth and reconciliation, then they will have to, uh, at the end of that discussion, uh, agree for the need for social transformation. Uh, And we can speak in terms of reparations uh, in that manner. Uh, But the the uses of truth truth, uh, is to find a solution uh, to the ills of society. We're not going to talk our way uh, past uh, the necessary necessity of changing the way society is organized and uh, bringing those boots on the bottom uh, up to the surface. I like the way you phrase that. What would you say to someone who argues that Cory Booker or and or Kamala Harris are trying not to be in their, you know, kind of lack of support or embrace of a real reparations program as you've discussed? are trying to not be seen as too scary or radical of candidates for Reagan Democrats to come back to the party and vote for them. What would you say to either who argued that it made political strategic sense for black candidates specifically to, during primaries and even general elections, distance themselves from race issues? And don't worry, when they get in office, they'll support the interests of African Americans in the struggle for black liberation. What do you say to people who are saying that that might just be a strategic play on both their parts? Well, you know, you know, in, in terms of reparations, and I think I made myself clear in the beginning of this that that all I think is necessary is endorsement of HR 40 and acknowledgement of the debt. But one of the reasons that the rep- reparations uh, has become so quickly an issue uh, is not because of the strength of reparations advocates forcing this issue into the Democratic Party. Uh, it's because Republicans uh, are and, and right-wing uh, Democrats uh, are hoping uh, to that, that reparations is a disruptive uh, issue uh, and that they can uh, do some mischief in the whole Democratic Party process by injecting it. So we see a lot more talk, in fact, about reparations coming from the Fox News side of the aisle uh, than from the Democratic-oriented part of the corporate media. Uh, They're they're trying to put some stuff in the game, uh, hoping to do mischief. As always, as always, my friend, you know that's going to be happening. You write that Bernie Sanders is clearly a class-first politician and is, who is repelled by reparations on principle, but he acknowledges the crime against black people and will likely be persuaded to endorse the reparations study. Until black people have spoken en masse on reparations, there's little more than that can be demanded of Sanders or the, next, or the rest of them. To what extent can 
class first, undermine the discussion on race. Are those who focus first and foremost on class doing a disservice to black people and their fight against white supremacy? Well, sure they are, and and some do it on purpose, and and some do it quite sincerely. I I think that Bernie Sanders, and he comes from a Brooklyn nineteen uh, fifties and sixties uh, left uh, Jewish uh, background. I I know that this this class first conversation uh, is very central uh, to his views. Uh, uh, however, uh, so far, I, I, I believe that he's basically come, uh, uh, he's basically uh, done uh, all that could be demanded, uh, I think, uh, in terms of reparations by acknowledging uh, the great racial uh, wrong uh, and uh, seeming uh, to uh, support H.R. Uh, 40. Uh, I think he can, he can now continue with his class-first uh, approach, uh, which in a society like the United States, uh, in which uh, it, it, it until very recently uh, has been considered taboo uh, to raise economic issues because that uh, means uh, you're trying to foment class war, uh, his class-first approach is, uh, in fact, uh, quite uh, effective and enriches the debate. Uh, so he can keep on going class first, as far as I'm concerned, as long as he acknowledges the uh, special harms and debt uh, to black people and endorses H.R. 40. Uh, just a few more questions for you, uh, Glenn. Recently, scholar Sidney K. Reddy was on our show to talk about her essay, We Don't Need No Education, Deschooling as an Abolitionist Practice, which is part of the collection Abolishing Carceral Society, which we're featuring on our show on a series of interviews. It's uh, by an organization called the Abolition Collective. Sidney explained her dilemma of being a teacher and explaining to students how to lead a better, happier life while understanding that reform that they may be taught only fixes the system, making it stronger, That so it's even harder to overcome, that you're reinforcing the same racist, uh, market-oriented form of government that you're trying to teach your students on how to overthrow. Can we address race through reforming this system, if at all, or does that just reforming the system reinforce what is inherently uh, institutionalized racist system of white supremacy? Well, I think if we address the problems of U.S. society uh, from the standpoint of democracy, uh, and we have a real conversation about the meaning of a democracy, we won't be so confused. Uh, if we're talking about mass black incarceration, uh, who who is who are the authorities that are arresting uh, black folks? Uh, Obviously, any 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 discussion of that would lead to an endorsement of black community control of police. Uh, is that reformist? Well, it depends on what what you mean by reform. Uh, uh, if 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 black communities uh, have a veto power on the authorities that police them, is that compatible with U.S. governance as now constituted? If it's not then that's not a reformist demand. But if the governing authorities uh, uh, can accept black community control of the police, uh, then it's a reformist demand. So, I, so I, I'm, I'm not sure that, that, that 
that that we're even clear on the meaning of of what is reform and and what's transformative or what's revolutionary. That, that is, an awesome but I know, but I know that black community control of the police is an issue of democracy. This is why I love having you on the show, Glenn. Uh, so, in 1988, President Reagan signed the Civil Liberties Act, which gave more than 100,000 people of Japanese descent who were incarcerated in internment camps during World War II. $20,000 each. Oprah favorite Marianne Williamson's $100 billion reparations plan that we talked about to pay 40 million descendants of slaves comes out to $2,500 per person. What explains why Williamson, or anyone else, has not asked for the same money, but in current dollars, that the U.S. was willing to pay Japanese American Americans over 30 years ago? What explains Republican willingness, like Reagan, to reparations for those of Japanese descent of internment camps but not for the descendants of slavery? That's an interesting question. Uh, the, first part, the first question that should be asked is why did the Japanese uh, beneficiaries of that $20,000 think that that was sufficient? Uh, we have to assume, uh, since, since we did not hear organized Japanese-descended folks' uh, opposition to the $20,000 figure, that it was sufficient. And maybe that explains uh, why the United States government uh, felt confident uh, in, in coming up with such a measly kind of reparations package, because they knew that that would, in fact, be closure, and that they could then uh, walk away from it and pat themselves on the head and say that they were good guys, and, uh, well, uh, that, that crime is now forgiven, if not erased. Uh, but you can't do that with black America, uh, because 20,000 or even 200,000 or the equivalent to each individual doesn't, uh, satisfy us. It won't be enough. Uh, so don't even step. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. We may, we, we may have come here on a slave ship, but we're not going down with this titanic and imperialist, in, in imperialist decline. How can African-Americans avoid going down with all of us stupid white people on this titanic of an empire we call the U.S.? Well, you know, that's, that's what I was thinking about when doing the calculations on uh, the cost of providing a new home for every black household and whether that would be, uh, in, in terms of that academic you were quoting, whether that would be a closure. Well, it would be a, a new home in, in this sinking ship. Uh, is that what we want? Uh, is 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 that is that the end of the story? <laughs> and and another and another and another uh, two thousand date occurs and, and, and wipes that out. <laughs> it it seems like such an ignominious end to the Black American saga. No, that's that's not. That's not the ending we want. We've been speaking with journalist, political activist, and radio host Glenn Ford. He is the executive editor of Black Agenda Report, and he has posted the column, Reparations Means Global Social Transformation. Glenn has been appearing on This Is Hell for at least the last 16 years. He is co-host of Black Agenda Radio with Nellie Bailey. You can find all of Glenn's writing and audio at blackagendareport.com. And I strongly suggest you listen to his audio reports and his podcast. They're really fantastic. One last question for you, Glenn. And as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response 
what do you say to a white person who's down on their luck, who's having trouble making ends meet, who doesn't live in the best neighborhood, who doesn't have easy access to the necessities of life like affordable health care, quality and safe housing, as well as clothes for their backs and foods for their stomachs? What do you say to that white person who insists that they do not experience white privilege and they do not see how they benefit at all from any white supremacy that they insist for them does not exist. How do you, as a black person, experience white privilege and white supremacy that a white person who denies both exist may not realize or recognize as privilege? Well, I don't know why I'm obligated uh, to explain uh, to this white person who's not doing well, A, why he's doing well, and B, why I have anything to do with why he's not. Uh, but if he insists, uh, I will remind him uh, that the United States is the the country, the most, the developed country with the least developed left wing, with the least developed progressive policy, politics, uh, with the social mechanisms that are least prepared to lift that poor white man out of his uh, terrible condition, uh, because white folks uh, have historically not uh, seen uh, fit to have solidarity with black folks who are even worse shaped uh, than that. Uh, and so the whole of the working class and the class that wants to get work in the United States is split and confused and wanting answers that other folks in other parts of the world have already found answers to. Uh, so uh, his ignorance uh, is something that he ought to uh, ask his ancestors about. How come you didn't make common cause with those black folks uh, who were enslaved? And how come you didn't make common cause with those black folks uh, who were getting Jim Crowed and mass incarcerated so that you'd have lots of allies uh, instead of looking from the sidelines saying, what's that? Reparations. Who's getting the check? What about me? <laughs> Glenn, I always love your answer to the question from hell. They're always fantastic. Thank you so much for being back on our show. I'm glad that you were able to reschedule with us today. You know I'm going to be bugging you in the future. I love you, brother. Thank you for everything that you have done in supporting our show. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks. It's always fun. Take, take care, Glenn. <laughs> Manufacturing Descent since 1996. This is Hell. Now our continuing segment of Beto O'Rourke's late 1980s posts as a member of the hacker group Cult of the Dead Cow and our ongoing attempt to make fun of Beto O'Rourke as much as possible and hopefully make certain nobody ever votes for him for any political position ever again. As a member of the Cult of the Dead Cow, Beto went by the hacker handle Psychedelic Warlord, which is weird. Today's entry is from August 29th, 1988. It's called Visions from the Last Crusade. The catacombs of my head produce the most wonderful dreams and visions. I feel that I am only one with my intellect and my soul. It was during these dreams and visions that I concocted a notion. It started as something small at first, but after every dream it grew stronger until the urge had become too great. 
No longer could this strong desire in my mind be suppressed. Turn down the music just a bit there, my friend. Recognizing this fact, my one and only goal in life became the termination of everything that was free and good and loving. Only I could realize the true value of loving and expression. Only in my dreams. This feeling pervaded everything in my life. Yet the first few months after realizing my goal, I'd done nothing. Then in this dream state, Beto kills people being happy. Beto continues, the more people I killed, the longer my dreams were. I soon quit my job and stayed at my house in an almost comatose state. My dreams, they grew longer and more vivid. They kept me alive and proved to be the only thing to live for. I had killed nearly 38 people by the time of my 23rd birthday, and each one was more fulfilling than the last. I was never really surprised at how I evaded the police. My dreams had taken over my life. They guided me through the right path, and I never had need for fear of police, or anything for that matter. Tune in next time when we will continue to read Beto's 1980s insanity until he either quits running for president or everyone stops listening and having any attention distracted by that freak. Please stop with the Beto. Thanks to everyone for coming out to This Is Hell Office Hours at Curry's Lounge. 2251 West Devon, which happen every Wednesday. They're happening tomorrow. Drop by immediately after our 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. podcast. They will be starting probably about 4.02. So they might be ending a little bit earlier tomorrow night. Drop by, drink, hang me out, watch me drink, get some free This Is Hell advertising stickers and free show-related books. Thanks to everyone who dropped by last week. Uh, let's see, Wally Theron, John, Rachel, another John. There was Johnny as well. Leo, Dave, uh, David, uh, Elliot, Jordan, Shelly, Pete, Rod, maybe Jonah. I-, I know I'm missing like half a dozen other people who were there. So I apologize. I forgot your name, but find it kind of creepy writing people's names down when I'm being introduced to them so I can thank them on the air because it just looks weird. But anyway, you too can join us at Carrie's, the bar downstairs from where I am sitting right now every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. for This Is Hell Office Hours Staring into the Abyss so you don't have to. This Is Hell. Alex, what have you been up to on social media? Have you thought at all about putting a fireman slide from uh, just right outside your door, just straight down to the bar? A pole? Would you like to see a pole or a slide? What would you? Oh, yeah, yeah. I guess I guess firemen use poles, not slides. Yes, yes. Sorry. But I think there is a slide actually in some fun firehouses. Uh, I posted a piece I really liked a lot called uh, from Gizmodo called "How Google, Microsoft, and Big Tech Are Automating the Climate Crisis." Uh, guess what? They're behind it, and uh, <laughs> it's getting worse. Uh, and also, uh, something very funny happened on Twitter. Hold on, let me pull my mic up a little bit. Okay, there we go. Um, this week, I was in the middle of emailing Chuck about Anna Merland's book, Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theorists and Their Surprising Rise to Power. And at that moment, I got an email from a listener, Andrew S., about Anna Merland's Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theorists and Their Rise to Power. Uh, so I announced this eerie coincidence on Twitter, and now we have Anna booked to be on the show on the 20th. Uh, so maybe she planned it that way all along. <laughs> maybe listener Andrew S. is Anna Merlan. Spooky. So 
possible. And uh, on, George Sand was a woman. On Instagram, I continued a uh, a dire content uh, tradition of posting the inside of This Is Hell's uh, office's fridge. And who the hell put a Mother Jones, uh, a Mother Jones stainless steel water can in there? I did. That was sent to us by Mother Jones like 15 years ago, 18 years ago. They sent to us the, to that out of the blue. And I was just like, you know, stainless steel, the production of stainless steel, all that great for the environment. Uh, that might have been before Mother Jones really lost it, though, so I guess it's not that bad. Yeah. What has happened to that magazine? You know what's really sad about that magazine? When there is one good article every few months, and that one good article is lost because people aren't paying attention to Mother Jones, and then and it's you're like, well, hey, I'm glad this person who's a good writer got their good writing in this magazine. You yeah, know, them and the Atlantic have just turned into goofballs. Oh, Atlantic, yeah, forget about that. Let's see if we can finish up this week's listener feedback. Ivar writes to us at Chuck at ThisIsHell.com. Hi, your two interviews on violence in early March were very thought-provoking. Brad Evans does a good job arguing against violence as an essential part of human character, while Kelly Carter-Jackson does an excellent job of discussing how the violence contained within slavery has driven much violence within the U.S., particularly the Civil War. While listening to your interview with her, I was struck by two things. First, how does Kelly view... Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s embrace of nonviolent protest as a tool of social change. Doesn't seem that her book covers the civil rights movement. And you are correct, Ivar. It's only about black antebellum violence leading up to the Civil War and how that led to a rise in the awareness of how there should be a violent overthrow of the system of slavery. Ivar continues, second, I recently read a book by philosopher Charles W. Mills called The Racial Contract that uses the philosophical construct of the contract to argue that this sort of contract underlies social relations, particularly one with jizz about race. In Kelly Carter Jackson's discussion, I could hear echoes of this, which ties into the utter dehumanization of non-white people that came into the conquest of the Americas and the subsequent slavery. I've uh, pasted some quotes here from Mill's book that help you uh, maybe understand his work better. You may be interested in reading his work yourself. Uh, thanks again for all your hard work, and I hope to catch up soon. Best, Ivar. Thank you, Ivar. And I strongly suggest that all of our listeners listen to both interviews, with Brad Evans and Kelly Carter-Jackson. But the Kelly Carter-Jackson interview will blow your mind and completely rethink everything you know about the Civil War and the fight against slavery and abolitionism that led up to the Civil War, it really will make you completely view American history in a different way. Harriet sent us an email to chuck at thisishell.com. I like your show very much. I listened to your excellent interview on education earlier in March with Sidney K. Reddy, who wrote the essay, We Don't Need No Education, from the Abolishing Carceral Society book. I'd like to suggest that you do a feature on early childhood education, Alex, in Evanston. Warren Cherry Preschool is a wonderful example of education at its best. My connection to the school is that I am close friends with the founder and retired director. I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks, Harriet. So, Alex, Evanston resident and retired district educator, uh, Harriet, says that this school, again, Warren Cherry Preschool, is a wonderful example of education at its best. You have a kid who's going to be going into preschool. Warren Cherry Preschool, by chance, Alex? 
Uh, it could be Warren Harding. I don't care. Just get rid of my kid for three hours a day. <laughs> Tom has yet another guest suggestion. Uh, I happened upon this excerpt from the book How Fascism Works by Jason Staley, who might make an interesting guess on This Is How. Actually, uh, Jason Stanley. And he was at Evanston, I think, either earlier this month or last month, and they actually reached out to us, but just didn't work out. Tom, Tom then cites an article at the Boston Review by Stanley called What John Stuart Mill Got Wrong About Freedom of Speech. This is really fascinating. Stanley writes, the argument for the marketplace of ideas presupposes that words are used only in their descriptive, logical, or semantic sense. But in politics, and most vividly in fascist politics, language is not used simply or even chiefly to convey information, but to elicit emotion. The argument from the marketplace of ideas model for free speech thus works only if society's underlying disposition is to accept the force of reason over the power of irrational resentments and prejudice. Language becomes a vehicle for emotion rather than meaning. If the society is divided, however, then a demagogic politician can exploit the division by using language to sow fear, accentuate prejudice, and call for revenge against members of hated groups. Attempting to counter such rhetoric with reason is akin to using a pamphlet against a pistol. Mill seems to think that knowledge, and only knowledge, emerges from arguments between dedicated opponents. Mill would surely then be pleased with the Russian television network RT, whose, question, whose motto is, Question More. If Mill is correct, RT, which features voices from across the broadest possible political spectrum, from neo-Nazis to far leftists, should be the paradigm source of knowledge production. However, RT's strategy was not devised to produce knowledge. It was rather devised as a propaganda technique to undermine trust in basic democratic institutions. Objective truth is drowned out in the resulting cacophony of voices. The effect of RT, as well as the myriad conspiracy theory-producing websites across the world, including the United States, has been to destabilize the kind of shared reality that is in fact required for democratic contestation. Which is fascinating! But I know my first question for the author would be, yeah, but what if that shared reality is a complete fiction? Tom, you are not the first to request that we interview Jason Stanley, so I promise to look into it. About a month ago, Daphne joined us during office hours at Carrie's Lounge. Daphne writes, hey Chuck, thank you for showing my friend Evan and I your new studio. It made for an awesome Wednesday night. I wanted to share the info of Florencia Malone, or Mayone, Professor at University of Wisconsin-Madison, she did an incredibly lengthy investigation into the Mapuche who were fighting for their land in Chile. And before that, she wrote a history and theory brick book called Peasant and Nation, The Making of Postcolonial Mexican in Mexico and Peru. I haven't read that second one, but I am in awe of her ambition to compare these two countries in terms of their rural life and how it was political and politicized. Thank you, Daphne. Because I think we've talked about the Mapuche only a handful of times in our show in the past. We should return to covering their plight real soon. So thank you for the tip, and we may just do that. Laughing Cow writes, Dude, dude, you got to do an interview about the history of May 1968. I don't think enough of the left, including myself, really understands how pivotal the events of May 1968 took hold of the world. I can't really think of who you should interview, but your buddy Cole Stangler has an article in The Nation called 
Neglected History, May 1968, French Uprising. I've only heard an interview, Laughing Cow writes, I've only heard an interview Tariq Ali did on his show on YouTube about May 1968, and it was pretty captivating. I don't care when you do an interview or with who on the subject, but I would like to hear one about the topic. By the way, all the interviews I've heard from your show have all been awesome and so many to pick out that I thoroughly enjoy. Keep it up. I love what you guys do. Thank you, Laughing Cow. Great reminder. I appreciate it. We plan on covering the May 1968 uprisings on their 50th anniversary in May. And wait, that's 2008, so we missed it. Don't worry, Laughing Cow. I'm sure we'll get to it by the 100th anniversary. And that's listener feedback for now, as we are just about up to the top of the hour. The United States has been supporting a four-year war that has left tens of thousands dead and millions more vulnerable to famine. Here to help us understand why the U.S. is backing this horrible, horrible war, as I grabbed the wrong notes, education scholar Shireen Al-Ademi wrote the In These Times article, As War on Yemen Hits the Four-Year Mark, Here's a Brief History of U.S. Involvement. The political tide in the United States may finally be turning against the war, so we must not let its U.S. proponents whitewash their wrongdoing. Welcome to This Is Hell, Shireen. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show, Shireen, as an assistant. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? Is it Shireen? Yes, Shireen Aladini. Okay, I was just making sure I was getting it correctly. Shireen is an assistant professor of education at Michigan State University, and you can follow Shireen on Twitter at Shireen818, that's S-H-I-R-E-E-N-818. In your March 25th article, you write on the fourth anniversary of the war in Yemen, this brutal and ongoing onslaught has taken the lives of more than 60,000 Yemenis and left the half the population, 14 million people, on the verge of famine. What began as a civil war in Yemen escalated into what the United States, United Nations, sorry, United Nations calls the world's worst humanitarian crisis. If they have called this the world's worst humanitarian crisis, Shireen, how well is the world reacting and responding to this crisis? Unfortunately, not as um, significantly as one would hope. And in fact, unfortunately, too many people have been involved in this war, have been involved in the onslaught of civilians in Yemen, either directly or indirectly through, um, you know, profiting from weapon sales. Uh, and so the response really has been underwhelming, considering how much devastation and destruction Yemen is seeing as a result of this international attack that began in 2015. You write uh, that Yemen became an international killing field with Saudi Arabia leading a vicious bombing campaign, which the Obama and then Trump administrations helped unleash. How has the war changed from December 2016, the end of the Obama administration, to today, April of 2019? How has the war changed, if at all, from Obama to being under Trump's administration? Well, the Trump administration inherited this war essentially from the Obama administration and continued to, you know, continued to support the Saudis and the Emiratis in this war effort without any debate in Congress. Uh, we know now that this has been going on despite it being unauthorized. The president does have no author, has no authority to declare war. Congress has authority to declare war. And so both the Trump and Obama administration have been violating federal law in their support of the Saudis in this war in Yemen. 
Um, but I think in terms of uh, significance, nothing has changed on the ground. The only difference between the Trump and Obama administration in this war is that um, Obama apparently had one red line, which was not, uh, uh, you know, not supporting the attack on the Hodeida port, which is the port in Yemen where 70% of aid still trickles into the country. And apparently that was a red line for Obama, but under Trump administration, we've seen that there are no red lines, that the Emiratis led an attack with the support of the United States on that port, um, which is why, um, you know, they've threatened to um, um, starve most of the population. So uh, just using the Yemen war as an example, then, What's the difference between the militarism of Obama and the militarism of Trump? Is the, is the only difference they still engage in militarism? It's just the, the degree to how harsh their militarism is? What's the difference? Just using this as an example, what is the difference between the militarism of Obama and Trump? I think there's really no, no difference at all. Um, both administrations have been quite open in their support of the Saudis. When it comes to this foreign policy interventionist stance, it seems that both the Obama and Trump administration have been uh, aligned. And, um, you know, when, when this was Obama's war, there was uh, very little resistance to it in Congress. Uh, and now that there's finally enough resistance to it, it really should not, the narrative should not be that this is uh, a, bipar- you know, a, a partisan issue. This should just be something that we all focus on to end the war because neither administration uh, really seem to be to have any qualms about creating this disaster, even under Obama. Within five months of the war, people were saying, not just people, um, the uh, the director of the um, ICRC was saying that Yemen in five months is like Syria in five years, and so the the devastation has been apparent from the very beginning. But neither Obama nor Trump seem to have had any qualms with supporting the Saudis in creating this um, incredibly disastrous situation in Yemen. So I personally see no difference between both administrations in their approach to this war in Yemen. This is the other thing I don't understand about the war in Yemen. Where is the anti-war movement in the United States? Where's the anti-war movement that existed and had those huge rallies back in February of 2003? What happened to the, I don't even care what happened, the U.S. anti-war movement. Why do you think the U.S. anti-war movement is not as energized as they were in 2003 against the war in Iraq? That's a really good question, and I think that's something that uh, many Yemeni Americans have been wondering the same, uh, and many Yemenis, of course, who are just kind of wondering why this onslaught was allowed to happen with uh, so little uh, protest. But I think also, the if you think back to 2003, I mean, I remember I was a college student back then, and there was so much media coverage on the war. And um, if you turn on your TVs now, even if you consider yourself an ardent you know, follower of the news, you still wouldn't really hear about Yemen. And only in the last few months did we start hearing more about this conflict in Yemen. But it was still this conflict for four years. It was allowed to continue without much scrutiny, without much media attention at all, despite the significance of the crisis. So I think people react to what they see on the news. Um, And now there's a lot more kind of organization and coalitions have been getting together and speaking out against this war. But, you know, it's a far cry, of course, from the... um, the, the mass protests that were going on globally um, in 2003, uh, 2003 in you know, the lead-up to that war, and, of course, in the 70s when um, people were protesting the Vietnam War and so forth. 
To you, what explains that lack of media attention? I mean, you wrote this article for In These Times, and These Times has had some coverage of the war in Yemen. Other uh, alternative media outlets outside of the mainstream news outlets, the larger corporate outlets, they've been on the Yemen war. Uh, Foreign press has been on the war. BBC, Deutsche Welle, France 24, I've watched reports on the Yemen war there. To you, what explains why the U.S., national, corporate, broadcast, news media, mainstream media. To you, what explains why they're not covering the war in Yemen? Well, that's kind of the big question. You know, they aren't state-sponsored media, and so they should have the freedom to report on our government's adventures overseas. And we should not have this bias in our media that uh, prevents our listeners from knowing exactly what, you know, how our tax dollars are being spent and which defense contractors are getting um, these contracts. And um, especially when we've created this conflict, it's not some random conflict that's happening with uh, that we have nothing to do with. It's not even just the weapon sales. The U.S. is directly involved in the war. They're so involved that Congress has finally, you know, decided to take back its authority and challenge this president on it for the very first time in history. And so um, I think it's very disappointing. And more recently, we've had corporate media take on this issue of uh, Yemen and CNN. After, you know, last August, there was a bomb that... Um, you know, an, an airstrike on a school bus full of children, and that prompted CNN to do an investigation, and they linked U.S.-based weapons uh, and bombs and missiles to uh, dozens of uh, airstrikes that were happening throughout the country. But this was not new information for Yemenis. I mean, you could just see the serial numbers. Children pick up the remnants of bombs, and, you know, you see those pictures on Twitter. Um, we've been seeing them since 2015, and the serial numbers trace back to Lockheed Martin or, you know, whatever, Raytheon or whatever other U.S.-based company. And so uh, I think they've been very late in um, tackling this issue. Uh, and, and and I think it would, you know, people looking back would uh, wonder why it took them so long to really just do their job and uh, tell the world what uh, the U.S. has been involved in in Yemen. You write that as the political tide in the United States finally turns against the war, we must not let its early opponents and those who remain silent whitewash their misdeeds. We must be willing to look honestly at what the United States has done to the Yemeni people so that we can finally end this war and prevent similar atrocities in the future. And we'll do that, but first, the most recent news on Yemen is, as Susanna George of the AP reported last Thursday, April 4th, in an article headlined, Congress invokes powers to challenge Trump on war in Yemen. The House invoked never-before-used powers to demand that the Trump administration withdraw support from the Saudi-led war in Yemen. The Senate passed the same resolution in March with bipartisan support. And reports state that President Trump will possibly and most likely veto the resolution. But as of when I was doing this research yesterday, I don't think that had happened yet. So before we get started with how we got to where we are with the Yemen war, after four years of bipartisan support for the war in Yemen and support of the Saudi Arabian cause there, why is there a sudden bipartisan change of heart? What happened that has led the Yemen war to suddenly lose any level of support on Capitol Hill? Well, I think for the Democrats, at least, so every single Democrat voted in favor of this war powers bill. And in the House, um, we had, um, you know, in the in the Senate, we had seven Republicans vote with us. And in the House, we had 16 Republicans vote in favor of this war powers resolution. And so right now, it's mostly a Democratic effort. And I think eventually the Democrats were able to separate themselves from Obama and, you know, separate this war from Obama. And uh, now it's become Trump's war. And it's becoming really 
unjustifiable. I mean, it was unjustifiable from the beginning, but I don't think, you know, people can just turn away from these pictures of starving kids anymore, and it's not just one or two children. It's, you know, hundreds of thousands of children who are starving to death in Yemen, and we're causing that through the blockade, through these... Uh, through our support of the Saudis. And there's been no progress. So the Saudis um, and Emiratis have uh, captured parts of Yemen, and those parts have remained you know, the same since the last three years. They've not captured any new territory. They've not been make, able to make any advances. Uh, I think what they're looking for is full occupation, and, and it's a, you know, the current situation is a far, far cry from that. And so why continue to support this losing war, essentially, um, that's caused nothing but so much carnage and death and destruction in Yemen? Um, so I think there's just been, over time, uh, the separation of uh, that this is no longer just Obama's war, this is now Trump's war, so it's easier to coalesce support against it, and then also it's just becoming so difficult to justify what the U.S. role is actually is, other than just the blatant um, reason, which is making money off the Saudis. Let me ask you a kind of a more general question. To what degree can the U.S., can the people of the U.S., uh, because of the media environment we have, because of the government we have, because of the society we have, to what degree can we here in the U.S. honestly look at what the U.S. has done to Yemen, or any nation for that matter? How much would honestly looking at what the U.S. has done in Yemen challenge the way Americans view the U.S. as a doer of good? Because I really think that we have a limited ability to honestly have a conversation about the kind of devastation this country does overseas? Well, in my interactions with people, and I've been going around the country and meeting people and giving talks, and it's, you know, I've not come across people who hear and learn about what's going on in the war in Yemen and what the U.S.'s role is, and then just turn away and say, it's not my problem. I've met people who are genuinely horrified about what the country has been doing. Uh, patriots who don't want to see the country, you know, uh, get involved in, in wars such as this and this much destruction for no reason. There's no justifiable reason. And, um, you know, not that anything would justify the killing of children, but I think it's very difficult for people to look away. And in fact, all of the support in Congress, even the Democrats being pushed to support these resolutions, I think have come as a result of all of this grassroots organizing where people are calling their senators and uh, they're, they're Congress people and demanding that, you know, this isn't even a call for inter intervention. This is the very opposite of that, demanding an end to U.S. intervention in Yemen because the Saudis have already, you know, um, done so much to demonstrate that they have no consideration for human life and the U.S. has been helping them along the way. So I, I personally think that the more people who know about this, the more we can um, work toward ending this war. And even in, in Congress and in the legislation, we've seen hesitation at the beginning, but then eventually so much support to the point where we have every single Democrat in the House and the Senate vote with this bill. And so I think a lot of it has to do with them facing their constituents in town halls, even if it's one or two voices in those town halls. And nobody wants to sit there and support the Saudis and say, well, we're supporting the Saudis and their carnage in Yemen. That's a very difficult message to pass. And I think um, you know, the more people know about this, um, hopefully the more they would continue to hold their elected officials accountable. So as I understand it, the, I don't know if you want to even label it this way, but the most re recent origins of the war are the August 18th, 2014 Houthi protests <clears throat> against the lifting of fuel subsidies that led to what was eventually called the September 21st movement. That movement seized power, if that's a fair statement, and formed a unity government with President 
Abdraba, sorry, Mansur Hadi, which uh, eventually collapsed in January, leading to the March 2015 Saudi military intervention. Is that basically, is, is that accurate, what I just said? I think that's fair, yes. Okay. The, the Houthi takeover of Sana'a in September and then the collapse with the Hadi government ties, yes. And while I realize from your writing that Saudi-Yemen relations date back far, far more than just 2014, what do those fuel subsidy protests reveal about the war in Yemen? Because the Western press somehow misconstrued the French Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Vest movement, as being opposed to fighting climate change while ignoring what it said about class conflict in France. So what did the fuel subsidy protests reveal, if anything, uh, maybe even about the current state of affairs and the war that's still ongoing in Yemen? Well, well, I think the, the the problem that Saudis have with Yemenis or with the Houthis is much more simplistic. So the Houthis are this group of people who are um, at the northern border, uh, so their province is in Sada, which is a northern province that borders Saudi Arabia. And for years, in the early 2000s, they began, uh, you know, just the Houthis themselves are one family, they're a family of scholars, and they began... Uh, calling against the corruption of then-President Saleh, who had been in power for 30-something years. And um, they were calling out because he was you know, undeniably a corrupt leader who amassed a significant wealth. And the country was the poorest country in the Middle East, and places like Saddam didn't even have, some places didn't have running water or electricity. And so they were essentially calling that out at first, and then um, you know, extended kind of their protest to foreign intervention because Saleh was, uh, had a very good relationship with the Saudis and with the Americans and with the drone wars. There was a lot of foreign interve- intervention in Yemen going on already. And when they became a problem for Saleh, he decided to enlist the Saudi support to uh, try to, you know, eliminate them militarily. He killed their leader, but the movement continued to, to, to uh, grow and gain support. And I think in 2011 when the Arab Spring protests came to Yemen and Yemenis were peacefully demanding uh, change, the Houthis joined that movement, and they were part of that group that was calling for elections and positive changes in the country and democracy. That all got co-opted by different parties, and when the Saudis realized that the Houthis were gaining power in Yemen and they were able to, um, you know, come to take over, essentially, the capital, by then Saleh had been you know, had resigned and transferred power to Hadi, but still remained the most powerful man in Yemen. He still uh, had control over vast portions of the army. And the fact that they were able to take over Sana'a meant that he must have had, you know, helped them do that, or at least told the army not to intervene. And so if the Houthis became powerful, and the Saudis already have this bitter history with the Houthis, and they know that the Houthis are not going to be their friends in Yemen, that's what, you know, drove them to attack Yemen, because they have to have somebody in Yemen who is aligned with the Saudi government. Yemen is at a strategic location, 4.8 million barrels of oil. You know, it's a Saudi oil largely. Travels per day from, uh, you know, the port, uh, the uh, strait of Bab al-Mandab that Yemen controls. And the Saudis so essentially were panicking that they were going to lose this influence in Yemen and uh, allow a group like the Houthis, who is openly hostile to the Saudis, to... Um, gain a lot of control and influence in the country, which is why they began bombing Yemen. It, it, it almost sounds like Yemen exists, this is a horrible way to put it, but at the whim of Saudi Arabia. Does Saudi Arabia tolerate Yemen to have elected leaders, or, or leaders, even if they're not elected, that are not staunchly pro-Saudi? Absolutely 
Absolutely not. Like we've seen in the last four years, this has been their only issue. Hadi is a Saudi supporter, and he's based in Saudi right now. His entire government is based in Saudi right now. And that's the person they want to restore to power, even though his, you know, technically he's no longer the president of Yemen. Uh, his, he was appointed in a two-year term in a one-man election, and then, that, and then that term was extended for a year, and that year had passed, and then he resigned, and then took back his resignation. And so, um, you know, he has no legitimacy in Yemen. The people of Yemen um, don't have, don't think of Hadi as their leader, and that's one thing Yemenis can, most Yemenis can agree on. I mean, he has to make official visits to Yemen because it's a dangerous place for him to be, even in places that are occupied by Saudi and the UAE. And when he does visit Yemen, he stays offshore. And so this isn't a president that anybody considers a president, yet he is a staunch ally of Saudi Arabia, so, you know, he's the best choice for them. But back in the 60s, when Yemen, North Yemen, was a monarchy, and um, and the Saudis like to say that this is a Sunni-Shia war, too, because the Houthis happen to be Zaydi-Shia, and the Saudis we know are Wahhabis. Um, but, you know, back in the 1960s, when... The northern Yemen monarchy was facing a challenge by the, you know, through a popular revolution. Um, the Saudis were supporting the monarchy despite the fact that they were also Zaydi Shia. And so for them, it's much more important to maintain uh, a government that's in support of Saudi interest. And, you know, they're a, a monarchy. The Emirates and the, you know, all those countries in that region other than Yemen are either monarchies or sultanates or. Uh, or Emirates. And so the spirit of democracy that Yemen has been trying to, um, you know, fight for uh, is, doesn't exist in those countries and poses a threat uh, for those countries. And so that's another dimension of this as well. We are speaking with education scholar Shireen Al-Ademi. She wrote the In These Times article, As War on Yemen Hits the Four-Year Mark. Here's a brief history of U.S. involvement. Saudi Arabia and the U.S. contend the Houthis are supported by Iran. And both nations are keeping Iranian influence out of Yemen. Is this a proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia? And if so, which nation is best for the Yemeni people? Uh, neither nation. Uh, first of all, absolutely not. This is not a proxy war. This is, again, part of the Saudi narrative that when the U.S. press reports on it has been very uncritically just kind of repeating uh, Saudi narrative. And, uh, you know, I think it it's, it sends a it makes sense for the Saudis to cast this as a as a war against Iran because you know they that's a fear mongering tactic in that region now and you know no one wants Iran to have that much influence uh, in the region. Uh, the the Houthis, of course, have a positive relationship with with the Iranians, but by no means is this a proxy war. Um, if the Iranians are helping, they are certainly helping in the realm of media and moral support and whatnot, but, you know, there is no clear evidence that they're helping in any substantial way. We're talking about a country that's under land, air, and sea blockade by the Saudis, by the Egyptian Navy, by the U.S. Navy, um, and, you know, people are die inside the country because the airspace is controlled by the Saudis and they've shut down most airports, and so they can't receive medical care inside the country and they, you know, can't leave the country. Uh, we don't have a massive refugee crisis because people are trapped within the country for the most part. And so somehow within all of this, um, we're told that Iranians are able to uh, smuggle in weapons that nobody seems to be able to trace. Nobody seems to be able to find any Iranians in Yemen four years later. So unless they're in some kind of stealth mode, um, I would say that Iranians, there's no direct evidence, there's no concrete evidence that Iranians are involved in Yemen in any significant way. The people who are involved, of course, are the Saudis, the Emiratis, 
and they're mercenaries. So we have, you know, um, Eric Prince of Blackwater. It's called Academy right now, but he's employing several mercenaries, including ex-U.S. military and Sudanese soldiers and uh, South American soldiers and Senegalese soldiers and their ground troops in Yemen. Um, so we have uh, several foreign actors, either working as mercenaries or as part of the Saudi-led coalition, um, but certainly it doesn't seem to be uh, much of uh, Iranian presence, if at all. And just to remind our listeners, in case they haven't remembered it, as soon as they heard the name Eric Prince, that is the brother of the Education Secretary, Bessie DeVos. You write, yes. while the statement emphasized U.S. forces are not taking direct military action in Yemen, it noted a creation of a joint planning cell with Saudi Arabia to coordinate U.S. military and intelligence support. This was the original statement that got the U.S. military involved in the Yemen war. In reality, you write, Obama initiated yet another unauthorized U.S. military foreign intervention without approval from Congress, thereby violating the War Powers Act of 1973, which authorizes Congress, not the president, to initiate war. Why do you see this as an unauthorized military invention, intervention, while Obama and Congress and the Senate all apparently saw this as a non-direct military action and only U.S. military and intelligence support? Why is this an unauthorized war to you, but to Obama and Congress at the time, it was not seen as what it was, war. Well, I didn't even realize that, you know, I'm, I'm Canadian. I, I didn't know about the intricacies of U.S. law until I started to learn about the U.S.'s involvement in the war. And, in fact, Congress is the one that began to say, hey, this is an unauthorized, this is in violation of the War Powers Act. So starting 2015, 2017, uh, Ro Khanna, who's a junior congressperson from um, California, he's the first one to invoke war powers in Congress and uh, as a challenge to the president's war in Yemen. And since then, we know that it's not just this joint planning committee. This, we have the U.S. military in the command room deciding with the Saudis which targets are going to be, um, you know, which places are going to be targeted. We have U.S. warplanes uh, fueling Saudi and Emirati jets midair. And apparently this stopped a couple of months ago in November, but there's, we don't know for sure because uh, the Pentagon has not been forthcoming with its involvement in Yemen. We have U.S. special forces on the ground at the Yemeni-Saudi Arabian border. Um, you know, so, and then the U.S. Army was also boasting about all these contracts that they have in Saudi Arabia where they train Saudi soldiers, they maintain and upgrade their vehicles. They have all these courses for them on communication and, what, and so forth. And so uh, in every way, essentially, they are involved in this war. The only thing they're not doing is pulling the trigger. Um, and... Congress has, in fact, decided that this constitutes a violation of the War Powers Act of 1973 because all of these things constitute war. I mean, it's, war doesn't just involve, you know, holding up a gun and shooting somebody. War can mean many, many other things. And uh, now that the House and the Senate have passed the War Powers Bill, it shows that most of Congress has decided that the U.S. is, in fact, in violation of this um, war and that Congress has not authorized this war to take place. Only the president, first Obama and now Trump, have uh, continued to, to authorize this war without Congress's approval and in violation of the War Powers Act of 73. While you clearly hold the Obama administration responsible for its role in the war in Yemen, um, how much do you hold the Yemeni people themselves responsible? Because I want to make certain mm -hmm. that I am not 
taking all of the agency away from the Yemeni people, and I want to make sure that, yep. that people understand that this isn't just the fault of the United States and the Saudi, and Saudi Arabians or even blaming Iran or whoever else. So how responsible are the Yemeni people themselves for this war? I mean, we, you know, we find a situation where this was yet another civil war. I didn't live in Yemen for very long, uh, you know, 12 years in total. Uh, but in my life there, I went through two civil wars. And so this isn't, civil war is not new to Yemen, unfortunately. And, uh, these latest, this latest, you know, just before the, the war began, this was before the intervention began, there were markings of yet another civil unrest with the Houthis chasing the Hadi down to Aden and, um, and all of those things that were occurring. So, of course, Yemenis have uh, created this mess. Uh, the people themselves wanted a, you know, a, a revolution. They wanted uh, President Saleh out in 2011, and despite the fact that they're the most armed country per capita after the United States, it was a peaceful revolution for many months. And it wasn't until other parties, political parties, uh, that were previously loyal to Saleh who, you know, switched sides that this became an armed conflict. I believe we just lost Shireen. You're going to have to reconnect with her, Leo. And in the meantime, I'll go back into listener feedback and read some stuff. Oh, you must also kill her channel so that doesn't continue on the air for much longer. Thank you very much, sir. This is Hell, and you are listening to an exclusive streaming podcast for our Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you're listening on Saturday morning, you are listening to the first ever broadcast of a recorded, a live recording of This Is Hell. We've never done this before, and we're only able to do it this week because of the amazing support of our listeners, the people who subscribe at patreon.com slash thisishell as well as the people who go to thisishell.com and click on support, and all the people who share the show throughout the week, and the people who just are at home and listening right now. We appreciate all of your support in assisting This Is Hell to have our very own studios so we can have more control over our studios, we can give you more content, and we can give you more hell on a regular basis. Do we have Shireen on the line? Excellent. Uh, Shireen, so uh, we were, I was asking you about who, uh, how, to what degree the Yemeni people themselves are responsible, and you, may have, you got cut off right in the middle of it. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I think that, you know, for the Yemeni people, this has been a very frustrating and heartbreaking road toward democracy because um, the will of the people seems to always, um, you know, not matter, and uh, all of these political parties that have enriched themselves on the back of Yemenis, on the expense of Yemenis, have continued to play a war in destroying the country. And so I think the average Yemeni has no, you know, there's no way to blame the victims in all of this. The people who have caused all this death and destruction um, are the ones who are power-hungry and have um, led the country to where it is today. And so whether it's President Saleh, uh, who's now been killed by the Hosis, or the Hosis themselves, or the Islah Party, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, Party of Yemen, um, or all the people who have uh, taken advantage of the chaos, like Al-Qaeda, who, by the way, the U.S.-supported coalition in Yemen works alongside, uh, you know, now and, now and again. Um, I think all of these people are to blame, certainly. But no civil war could have caused this much destruction in Yemen. Yemen, like I said, has had its fair shares of civil wars. 
you know, when people are engaged in civil war, they won't blockade themselves because by blockading their enemy, they'd be blockading themselves as well. By targeting water plants and food storage, they'd be targeting their own water and food supplies as well. They're not going to, you know, restrict the airspace and shut down airports because that's going to affect them as well. They're not going to destroy infrastructure, and they haven't in the past. And so the, I think the extent of death and destruction that we see right now is not the result of the civil war, what would have remained as a civil war, but it's a direct result of this international attack of, you know, these foreign interventionists who have caused so much death and destruction. How many Saudi casualties have there been? None, because they hire foreign soldiers to do their work, and they're attacking a different country. This war isn't on their country. You know, how many U.S. soldiers have died in this war? None. How many Emirati soldiers have died? Probably a few. But, you know, we're talking Yemeni civilians who are bearing the brunt of this war. And it's a direct consequence of this foreign intervention. Wow, that was an amazing response. I'm so glad that we have you on our show today. You write that today, <laughs> Yemenis continue to suffer with over 85,000 people, 85,000 children under the age of five, who have died of malnutrition and preventable diseases as a result of the naval and land blockade imposed by the Saudi-led coalition. How much, I, I, can, I can only assume, that the reason that the naval and land blockade are there is to keep war material out in order to make certain that the war doesn't get worse. How much worse would the war be if sanctions were lifted? I mean, the fact that children are dying is the direct consequences of the blockade. There is no reason. So Yemen, Yemen is one of those countries where, um, before the war even, they relied on uh, importing 90% of their food. 90% of their food was through imports. So the, we, you know, they're not able to grow much inside the country. And it's uh, you know, crisis levels of, of water. And Yemen has been operating under crisis levels of, of uh, natural water for years. And now, with the war, we see even import water from, from foreign countries. And the water desalination plants have been targeted by the Saudi-led coalition. And so this isn't a country that you blockade hoping to limit arms, and then you, know, you can still be sure that food and water and aid is coming through. No, you've essentially blockaded food, water, aid, essentials. This is what you know, international humanitarian law classifies as war crimes. And when the Saudis speak about the blockade, they say, yeah, we're blockading the Houthis. For them, they also say, you know, that, yeah, we're bombing the Houthis. But... Uh, for them, the Yemeni population is essentially the Houthis, and so they are admitting to using starvation as a weapon of war, not just blocking because of the arms, but they're not just blocking, you know, starving Houthis, they're starving the entire population. And so I think that the fact that the U.S. is helping with this blockade is what has caused so much death in Yemen. The the death from airstrikes and the fighting and the violence is, uh, is of course, tremendous. It's at least 60,000 people who've lost their lives in the violence. But, you know, when we talk about just the deaths from people starving to death or dying of preventable illnesses like cholera, um, which is the worst in modern history is seen in Yemen right now, uh, that's where the numbers are really staggering because we're talking about hundreds of, li- hundreds of thousands of lives lost and we don't even know the full extent yet. That 85,000 number is, of course, just the estimate of uh, children under the age of five who've died of malnutrition disease, not all children, not all adults, not all people who've died of hunger and malnutrition. Um, or preventable illnesses like cholera and diphtheria and other things. And that's because of the blocking. We've had critics on our show, like The Guardian's Trevor Tim, who pointed out that leaving the immigration machine 
that uh, the Obama administration left behind allowed the Trump administration to turn that same kind of detention system into a much more abusive system and turned it into the immigration and detention system that Obama had started, but he had, but Trump put that system on steroids. Did a similar thing happen with the uh, policy towards the Yemen war? Did the Obama administration leave a killing machine in the hands of Donald Trump, who then made it far worse than it ever was before? And what does it say to you about Democrats who think, oh, well, Obama's in charge right now. He'll limit this. He'll constrain it. Don't worry without thinking about what might happen in the future. I think a war criminal is a war criminal, whether they've killed five children or 10,000 children is irrelevant. You know, the fact that Obama started this war should be the worst, uh, you know, blemish on his presidency. It's not, but should be his worst blemish of his presidency. And, um, you know, who's to say that he would have stopped this war because it became unpopular, you know, four years later. But when when the killing was going on under Obama, children were starving to death in 2015. Children were starving to death in 2016 when Obama was in power. Uh, people were dying of cholera. Cholera was already at its worst in 2016, and the Obama administration continued to support the Saudis. Um, when the Saudis um, killed um, 140 people at a funeral, that was under Obama's administration. And at the time, one of the generals said, no, 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 we, we're not even cons- going to consider stopping the refueling. Um, under Trump, apparently that refueling has stopped, mid-air refueling. Um, you know, you know, people at weddings and funerals and homes and schools and markets and you know, just vehicles driving by were getting you know, uh, bombed under Obama, just as they've been getting bombed under Trump. I think under Trump, of course, when he starved people for a long time, they began to die, and and you know, um, and the, maybe the casualties have just accumulated over time, but. And yes, he did okay the attack on Hadeda, which Obama didn't. But um, I don't think that that makes Trump any worse than any worse of a war criminal than Obama. Um, I think that they've both committed war crimes in Yemen, and and both should be held accountable for their role in creating this disaster. We have been speaking with education scholar Shireen Al Ademi. She wrote the In These Times article: "A War on Yemen Hits the Four Year Mark." Here's a brief history of U.S. involvement. Shireen is an assistant professor of education at Michigan State University, and you can follow Shireen on Twitter at Shireen818. That's S-H-I-R-E-E-N-818. Our final question for each and every one of our guests, Shireen, is what we call the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or I think this is the category this is going to fall in. Our audience is going to hate the way you respond. Shireen, How aware was the Obama administration, how aware was President Barack Obama that war crimes were being committed in the Yemen war with the help of the United States? I would say he was aware, as Trump has been aware. Uh, There's no denying that he overlooked the crisis because he maybe thought that helping the Saudis was was much more important, and he wasn't being challenged here at home for his role in the war, and so he kept it going. But, you know, I was so excited, Obama, in 2008, and I think this has been one of the most devastating things to see somebody I was so excited about because he was speaking against foreign intervention and, um, and of course, uh, other domestic policies as well. And uh, then to turn around and to not only begin with the drone wars in Yemen, which have killed innocent civilians, U.S. citizens in Yemen have been killed, 
assassinated by drones and then to you know work with the Saudis in this war that has devastated an entire country that poses no threat to, to the United States um, I think has been incredibly devastating to witness and uh, I think he was definitely aware and he should be challenged on his role in this crisis in Yemen. No, Shereen, I'm sorry, I just want to follow up on that because this is something that always bugs me. Whenever I mention that kind of thing to people who are knee-jerk Democrats, who are going to support the Democrat no matter what, whenever I say Barack Obama was voted into office on the idea that he was going to be more anti-war, and then he got involved in more wars than the George W. Bush administration did and the Republican Party did during the first eight years of the 21st century. Whenever I mention that, they always say, well, that's because Barack Obama couldn't do anything. He got into office and he found out that the powers that be are the powers that be, and he was just forced to do what he ended up doing. Whenever he was something bad, he was being forced to do something. He was being constrained somehow by the Republicans or by the U.S. government at large. How do you react to somebody who says, well, Barack Obama didn't have a choice. It was out of his control when it comes to the war on Yemen. I mean, I think it's preposterous. Nobody's forced to kill children. Nobody's forced to assemble armies and to drone people and to destroy lives, you know, because they're being controlled by somebody else. Um, This isn't what this position is. The position allows the person in power to make decisions that are uh, reprehensible like this, and I think he should be held accountable. Um, you know, every Yemeni in Yemen knows that this war is a U.S. war on their country, and then still we're here convincing Americans that we are, in fact, killing Yemenis with our weapons and with our intelligence and with our logistics and with our support um, because we're making a lot of money out of this relationship with the Saudis, and that needs to be questioned. No matter which president we've had in power, or Democrat or Republican, they've maintained this loyalty to Saudi Arabia, the, Saudi, the same Saudis that killed the journalist Khashoggi. Um, the same Saudis that have uh, sponsored, you know, terrorism across the world. Uh, the same Saudis who have destroyed all of these countries with their wealth and power. This, the, the U.S. makes a lot of money from them, and that should be questioned. Um, that's the issue here that every, you know, patriot here in the U.S., whether Democrat, whether Republicans, I think there are principles that we have to hold on to, and not just blind following of a certain person or a politician. Um, and yes, people are influenced, but not, you know, this isn't... Um, we're talking war crimes here. We're not talking just some policies that have, you know, maybe not ideal policies. We're talking war crimes, and history is going to judge us very harshly for not putting a stop to these people and to continue to elect uh, governments and people and parties into power that have shown us over and over and over again that they have no respect for civilian life when that civilian life happens to be overseas. Shireen, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show this week. This has been a fascinating conversation, and everybody should go check out your writing at In These Times. As war on Yemen hits the four-year mark, here's a brief history of U.S. involvement. Follow Shireen on Twitter at Shireen818. That's S-H-I-R-E-E-N-818. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. Let's go back into some listener feedback uh, that was sent to us at Chuck at thisishell.com. We now apparently have at least two listeners in Italy. Alfredo writes, I'm a native of Massachusetts and have been listening to your excellent program for many years. May I convey my highest compliments to you and your staff? You may. I now live in Italy, and I would like to suggest for a future broadcast of This Is Hell that you interview one of Italy's premier public intellectuals, Sergio Romano, 
who has also spent time in the past as a visiting professor at Harvard and Berkeley. He's an expert on the growth of populist movements in Europe, including the Yellow Vests in France and the governing Italian coalition. The government's now in power in Austria, Italy, and Eastern Europe and the role of NATO in U.S. foreign policy. He has also written and lectured with great expertise on modern Russia post-1990 and the rise of Vladimir Putin. He was Italian ambassador to the Soviet Union and then Russia for many years after serving for many years as Italy's ambassador to NATO in Brussels. He is very critical of the EU's role in NATO. He is now 92 years old, but he is perfectly lucid and continues to give public lectures in Italy. He also writes books on international politics when has recently been released and is a bestseller here in Italy. He's a lead editorial writer at Italy's major highest circulation daily newspaper, Corriere della Sera, and can be reached there. Needless to say, he is fluent in English. With best wishes from Italy, Alfred in Parma. Pretty cool, right? I think we now have more listeners in Parma than we do in Chicago. Henry also sent us an email to chuck at thisishell.com. Hi, I like your show, and it's one of my regular listens. I have a great idea. Get Douglas Rushkoff on your show. He's another one of my regular podcast listens. So for me, at least, it did have the appeal of something like the X-Men Teen Titans crossover comic I used to have. He would probably have significant differences of opinion with the majority of your guests, but he's not got some great thoughts and questions about tech and freedom and our responsibilities to one another and whatnot. Plus, he has a fairly new book out and he might like to push because this is hell. Thanks, Henry. Actually, Henry, we had Douglas Rushkoff uh, on This Is Hell way back in like 2010 or 2011 when we have the archives restored with the help of those who support This Is Hell at thisishell.com by clicking on support and getting a free gift for supporting and our subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. When we get our archives restored, our interview with Douglas Rushkoff and all our past 23 years of shows will be available to everyone for free online. And finally, we got this email from Rob at chuck at thisishell.com. Uh, neat best of show last week when you were away. So glad I found a radio app I like. Did I just write that? Okay. I did a lot of writing last month, clearing my head for a story I'm working on. I made five or six points in a row about being a little kid in Detroit. You'll appreciate it as your last podcast was, or your last broadcast was a best of show on Detroit. None of the things I wrote last month are much more than a thousand words. You'd probably appreciate a lot of them, but here's the first one about Detroit. Read them at theoneyoubelieve.wordpress.com. They start on March 19th. Rob. So Rob, thank you for listening. Thank you for saying that you liked uh, Alex's best of Detroit episode that he put together. Thanks for sending us the links, and we'll be reading your work. Really appreciate it. That's listener feedback. If you want to contact us and probably have your email or message read on air, you can email us at chuck at com. Message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. And DM us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Coming up, we'll find out what liberals like the New York Times' Paul Krugman gets wrong about rural America and why. And during a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin sees God. We'll tell you how listeners are rating This Is Hell on Facebook, and Facebook, or Bic, let's say book, 
Facebook and what they're saying about the show. Uh, we have people to thank for sharing the show online and people to thank for supporting This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell are Leo O'Connell and Alex Jerry. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Liberals get rural America all wrong. And a prime example is the New York Times columnist Paul Krugman. Here to guide us through what liberals get wrong about Appalachia and the rest of rural America. Writer Terrence Ray posted the article at The Baffler, Get Real, What Liberals Like Paul Krugman Still Don't Understand About Rural America. Welcome to This Is Hell, Terrence. Hi, Chuck. Uh, thanks for having me today. Follow Terrence on Twitter at Terrence Ray. That's T-A-R-E-N-C-E, Ray. Terrence is a writer living in Whitesburg, Kentucky, and is co-host of the podcast Trillbilly Workers Party. You can follow Terrence's podcast at The Trillbillies. You write a que- you got uh, sorry. You start with a question that keeps the New York Times op-ed columnist Paul Krugman up at night. You write that the question he's asking himself is, "What are we supposed to do with rural America?" It bothers Krugman. You write because he's both a liberal and a true believer in capitalism. He sees deindustrialization, capitalism's logical consequence, leaving people behind in rural areas. But he doesn't have a way to square his troubling fact with his troubling fact of the worldview that ostensibly honors the rights and dignity of all people. So he half-asses a few articles every now and then about expanding the social welfare state and increasing governmental spending in rural areas. Why is expanding the social welfare state and increasing government spending in rural areas half-assing it when it comes to rural America? Well, it's it's kind of like the same way that the Silicon Valley tech guys are, you know, they want, a, they want things like uh, UBI, and uh, they want an expanded welfare state because they don't have any real, um, you know, they don't have any real, they don't have anything to really uh, do with the people living in these areas. Um, you know, we talked a little bit on one of our recent episodes with the scholar Joshua Clover, who teaches at UC Davis, who was talking about the idea of capitalism was that it could only sort of endlessly absorb labor inputs. And, you know, as we sort of deindustrialize, as um, there's more and more of a surplus population uh, that, you know, can't be plugged into any sort of labor inputs, uh, you got to do something with all these people. Um, Kirkman can't just come out and say, you know, people have to move out of these areas, that people got to just migrate, because then he would sound a little bit like a Rand Paul or a libertarian. So his solution is basically, you know, just sort of hook them up to social welfare policies, um, expand uh, SSI benefits, uh, give them, you know, personal health care. And, you know, I make the point in the article, you know, that those are good things. Obviously, everybody needs those things. Um, but he's sort of missing the point. Uh, for him, it, it's, um, I don't know, for him, he doesn't really understand the function that rural America plays in the larger national economy. And as I said in the piece, the function that that, that rural America plays is as the supply source for raw materials, uh, coal and timber, natural gas and oil and food. And, uh, you know, because 
those are important resources for the rest of the economy. It's, you know, the, the sort of continued flow of those resources has to be protected, um, and the continued flow of the profit from those resources has to be protected. Kruger's not really interested in any of this because he's just a sort of, you know, he's just an economist. He's uh, in the sort of Keynesian mold. He just tracks the flow of global capital. He doesn't really see power or political economy or anything like that. You know, economists used to study political economy in the 19th century. That's not what they do anymore. Now they just track numbers. And it's, and it's, uh, it's kind of interesting because now uh, he, he sort of extended that uh, sort of logic to trying to measure or quantify things like sexism or racism or stuff in rural areas. Because, you know, it, 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 I don't know, it confuses them. It's like, why do they vote against their interests? Why do they vote for Trump? Again, it, he doesn't see power. He doesn't see political economy. So right. Uh, you, that's what he'll write about. You uh, believe Krugman can't square his support for capitalism with what you call capitalism's logical consequence, deindustrialization and capitalism's constant quest to acquire profits through cutting labor costs in a worldview that ostensibly honors the rights and dignity of all people. Does this reflect, in your opinion, maybe not just within Krugman, but is there a larger debate that may be growing here in the United States, and that is the contradictions between the logical consequences of capitalism and honoring the rights and dignity of all people? Are liberals questioning, finally, capitalism's ability to do good? I think they're doing the opposite. Um, I think they're doing everything they can to not question it. Um, and the reason I point that out is because, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, those two things could coexist within the liberal mind, that, that, that sort of contradiction, you know, endlessly expansion of the economy and uh, the protection of rights. Well, as the economy deindustrializes and as, uh, you know, the sort of, you know, political rights afforded to people are eroded away as a result, that's a huge contradiction that liberals aren't really sure how to um, how to bridge, and so that that's a you're, you're seeing a lot of real wacky stuff from a lot of the liberals these days. <laughs> uh, you write that the Times Krugman has been on this kick for years in 2015 in a column headline "America's Un-Greek Tragedies in Puerto Rico and Appalachia." He wrote about how the only solution for the deindustrialized wasteoids, your words, not Krugman's, still living in places like. <laughs> Puerto Rico and Appalachia is better social security payments, health care, public services. His reasoning was that some places are sacrifices every now and then to the shifting tides of globalization. In that column, Krugman actually wrote, uh, quote, Appalachia, where the disappearance of coal mining jobs has induced many workers to leave, while the remaining population makes heavy use of the social safety net. He then asks, how terrible is that really? The safety net is there to protect people not places. If a regional economy is left stranded by the shifting tides of globalization, well, that's going to happen now and then. What's important is that workers can be able to find opportunities elsewhere and that those unable to, for whatever reason, to take advantage of those opportunities be protected from extreme hardship. In Krugman's world, then, do we all simply have to live with the shifting tides of globalization? And how... It seems like he doesn't understand what it looks like, what those shifting tides of globalization looks like. Are we supposed to just live with these shifting tides of globalization? Whenever those tides shift, we're all supposed to just constantly be ready to up and move and move with the tide? Yeah, yeah. I think this is probably because, like I said a minute ago, he's an economist. I mean, he doesn't even really, he doesn't see power, obviously, but 
honestly, I kind of wonder if he even sees people. <laughs> it's just like he just sees people as sort of labor inputs and, uh, you know, they, you know, he just sees. <laughs> this is why he, like, advocates for these sort of, like, giving them social welfare benefits. He doesn't see people's lives as this as something that is shaped by capitalism, by political economy. Um, and all, when all, in fact, all of our lives are. It depends. It you know determines where we live. It determines how we get to work. It determines all kinds of things. Um, so for Krugman, it's just like you know. And again, this gets at the contradiction because he is a true believer in capitalism. And so, you know, the way he bridges that contradiction is just with a very keen and you know just give people social welfare benefits. If the economy rebounds where they're at, then they'll get jobs again, and capitalism will be. Right, you know, humming right back on on its sort of natural path. Um, you know, he believes in a kinder capitalism, something that's not as sort of beholden to the free hand of the market. But uh, but yeah, no, he 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 doesn't really like I said, he doesn't really see people in power. Is sort of anathema to his mind. I like that kinder idea of capitalism idea because what do you believe the logic of we can fix capitalism and make it a force of good through improved safety nets. Uh, what is that kinder capitalism idea? What do you think it's missing in its understanding of how capitalism works? Well, it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's missing the, the component of liberation, you know, and, and autonomy, um, which is, I guess, you know, one of the main reasons why we want to abolish capitalism. It's because, you know, we don't have autonomy over our lives, especially in, in these rural areas. It's like, um, you know, a few years ago, they, uh, our county tried to pass a, a gas tax on the gas wells in the county. And, um, you know, a bunch of citizens from the county showed up to support this gas tax. We're broke. Our county is entirely, all the counties in eastern Kentucky are going broke. Um, we're millions of dollars in the red. We have no, uh, you know, we're running out of um you know, infrastructure and all these other things, uh, and services and whatnot. Well, the oil and gas industry turned out about 100, you know, uh, oil and gas workers from across the state. And they came in, they bullied us around, and they basically pressured the county government to not pass this tax. And that's what I'm talking about. Like, a lot of these counties, they don't have any autonomy over our circumstances. It's all, it's all sort of dictated by the sort of whims of uh, capital and, and resource extraction. And um, and you're not going to end that with a nicer capitalism. That's what, you know, and, and I don't I don't even think that's possible anymore. I don't think Keynesianism that, that idea is even possible anymore. As the economy, as resources become more and more scarce, and as climate change exacerbates that sort of scarcity and and you know uh, facilitates and fosters uh, mig- migration and all these other things, like I'm not sure that there is a nicer capitalism. And that's what kind of makes Krugman so interesting. He's kind of uh, uh, a relic from a bygone era in some ways. You write that rural people do desperately need the things like health care and social welfare benefits. Rural jobs are declining as the nation continues to deindustrialize and more young people flock to the cities. It concerns savvy liberals that people are going to be left out of these patterns of migration simply because they can't afford to move to where the jobs are. They've read about these people in books like Hillbilly Elegy, which is awful, and in the pages of the New York Times. As good liberals, they don't agree with their political beliefs, but they do believe rural Americans should be helped. How does that perceived 
disagreement over political beliefs either shape or affect the kind of help that liberals want to offer the people of Appalachia? Well, it's almost a sort of like, it kind of gets back to the whole idea of means testing in general. It's like, and I think I'd noticed it in there, it's basically proven, seems to be saying like, you know, I'd love to be able to help you, but uh, to be able to do that, you're going to have to change some of your beliefs and core uh, psychological uh, behaviors. And, um, and so, you know, it, it, it's this sort of like means testing idea of giving people uh, benefits and, and things to actually better their lives. Um, but also, there's the whole idea of, um, you know, and, and this is, I think, what Krugman's getting at, and what he doesn't want to say. I mean, I think it's, his writing and his piece would probably much be much more clear if he would just come out and say it. But, but the thing that really bugs him the most is how people vote in these areas. Um, and, you know, they look at the sort of electoral map and they see uh, conservatives winning big, you know, every four, every two and four years. And and that's really what sort of, like, gets at Krugman so much. He's, basically, he's saying, like, well, we would love to be able to help you, but you're really going to need an attitude adjustment. You're really going to need to start voting differently. And, and, that, and what I'm trying to say is that, you know, I, I'm not trying to attempt any, you know, correct any kind of narrative. I mean, it may very well be possible that the vast majority of people in rural America is, are conservative. I don't think that's the case. Because I've grown up in rural America and live in it, uh, but and I'm also not sure how you would even quantitatively, you know, measure something like that. I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that, um, you know, you you can't study those things anyways unless you're studying, again, political economy, how ideology is formed, and what purposes it serves. And that's that's the point I'm trying to make is that like, even if these places do vote predominantly conservative. You know, you need to look at how many people are voting um, and why. But more so than that, you need to be looking at what's at stake. And what's at stake is those very valuable, profitable resources of rural areas. Yeah, and I want to get back to the, uh, at some point uh, a little bit later, I want to get back to the attitude adjustment part of Krugman's writing. But uh, they, you know, the idea is that liberals don't agree with people who live in rural America, don't agree with their political beliefs and especially like in Appalachia that's you see it more all the time in West Virginia a lot but as we have heard a couple of times from the writer Elizabeth Catt who's been on our show there are plenty of liberal even progressive I would say let's even get rid of the word liberal uh, very leftist progressive Appalachians as well as activist organizing as was seen in the groundbreaking West Virginia's teacher strikes so how do liberals square their the actions of people like West Virginia's teachers unions and their massive support with the idea liberals may hold that they disagree with Appalachians political beliefs. How do they square those two things when one of the most revolutionary and most left wing successful actions of the last few years started in West Virginia? Well, I think they, I think the way they square it is almost by neglecting it altogether. I haven't seen a whole lot of writing from the liberals about that. Um, it's possible I'm just, you know, I've curated my social media feeds to, to ignore it, but I haven't really seen them pay a lot of attention to it. Um, and yes, Cat uh, is, Elizabeth is, is totally right. I mean, there's, there's plenty of rural radicalism. And the point that I'm making in my piece is that there's also a lot of, uh, again, there's a lot at stake, and there are institutions of power that, you know, try very hard and are very successful at it, at erasing that sort of radical 
uh, tradition and radical existence. The West Virginia teacher strike is pretty interesting because it was um, it was an event where that sort of um, outrage finally managed to explode out of the institutions that had tried to contain the the sense against uh, repression and against exploitation. And um, and and it just goes to show you that this is a, just a truism about people struggling back millennia. Nobody likes being oppressed. Nobody likes having a brick to the neck, and nobody likes being exploited. People will always find a way to fight back. It's just that, you know, in the rural areas, in the provinces, um, there is a coordinated campaign, and it's, again, it's not really explicit. It's more like a sort of soft indoctrination program, soft authoritarian program, to sort of squash out any kind of free-thinking dissent uh, at, you know, at the earliest points of ideological development. And you see it everywhere. I mean, it, if you grew up in a rural area, I mean, after I wrote the piece, I had, you know, dozens of people saying, you know, actually, this is, this checks out. Like, this, you know, this sounds very familiar to my rural upbringing. It's, uh, you know, there are all kinds of institutions from the churches to the chambers of commerce to the school boards that, you know, try very hard to make sure that no kind of uh, progressive or free-thinking dissent or anything like that critique subversion is it can be expressed or, or manifested. Uh, that's, that's amazing. You mentioned how Krugman's March 13th column headlined Getting Real About Rural America, and you write that in that piece, Krugman is not so much concerned with economic forces themselves that are ravaging rural communities. Krugman, the realist, is instead tackling the hard questions about why these stubborn provincials won't just start voting for the policies that might actually benefit them. How far would voting Democrat go toward saving ravaged rural communities? I don't think it'd go very far at all. Um, and, you know, this is actually a very fascinating question, because um, this is something I wrestle with a lot, especially as Bernie's campaign, you know, picks up steam and, as, and, you know, having lived in Appalachia during his first campaign and, and you know, and grown up in a rural place in New Mexico and, you know, watched how the electoral politics plays out in these places. Um, I think that even, obviously, policies uh, advocated by Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and the more progressive wing of that party would benefit rural Americans. That, there's no question there. The, 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 it, the difficult thing is if they can win. And there's been a lot of examples lately that show that it might not be possible. Because, uh, you know, a good example is Richard Ojeda, the guy who ran in West Virginia, who uh, sort of styled himself as a sort of Bernie-type Democrat, anti-establishment populist guy. There was another. There's another candidate named Anthony Flacavino who ran down here in Southwest Virginia on basically more or less the same campaign, and you know, and you've seen this multiple times in other rural places too. What winds up happening in these places is that because there's not, and I point this out in the article, because there's not as big of a sort of middle class layer, which is generally the sort of like socioeconomic layer that engages in electoral politics, those more progressive candidates find themselves fighting over bourgeois interests rather than the sort of workers and the teachers and the tenants and the care workers and the service industry workers. And so what winds up happening is that they can't make any headway, and those candidates lose every time. Richard Ojeda got his, just got thumped in West Virginia. And, um, and so a lot of people are saying, well, then Bernie can't win either because, you know, uh, then Ojeda just shows that a populist can't win in coal country and all that. 
that very well may be possible. But the thing is, is that none of these politicians and none of these candidates are actually going for the workers that could deliver electoral wins. These people don't vote. These people don't engage in the electoral process at all. I'm talking about the service industry workers, the care workers, and all these other people who've been pushed to the margins completely. And so I'm, I'm, I'm just a little bit of a digression, but I guess the point I'm trying to make is that the, the policies pushed by Krugman and, and other sort of Democrat centrists and even more progressives, they're not, they, they don't have any traction in, in these places because none of these candidates are speaking to these sort of material lived experiences of the, uh, like I said, the sort of lower working class, the ones that are sort of marginalized and pushed to the uh, margins. When it comes to this attitude adjustment that you see uh, Paul Krugman wanting Appalachians and people in rural America to make, it seems that what the attitude adjustment is, is essentially recognize that Democrats support the safety net and you de- that you depend on so much, and so go vote for them. But as you point out in your article, it doesn't seem like safety nets are... At, uh, Appalachians aren't as dependent upon safety nets as they are upon the extractive industries. So to you, what does it say about Krugman? And why does he believe that Appalachians depend upon safety nets more than they do extractive industries? Well, I think it gets back to what we were talking about a minute ago. He doesn't really understand the function of uh, rural places. And this is a huge blind spot for liberals anywhere. It's like, where does your food come from? Where does your energy come from? We, you know, we're not mining coal in midtown Manhattan. We're not, you know, picking our food in Chicago. You know, this is, these, these things come from places. <laughs> like they are material goods. They're commodities that come from somewhere. The, those, that somewhere is the sort of place that we designate rural America. And so uh, for Krugman, it's, that's, that's why. Like, he, he just can't... Um, but I don't think he really wants to for a sort of multitude of reasons. Um, because I think, if, again, I think the reason, the biggest reason is because then he would have to confront power. And economists like Krugman, they're not interested in that. Um, that. That just doesn't really factor into how they view the world. Do you think that's reflective of liberals in general, that they do not want to challenge power? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, I guess I don't really have a lot of. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I'd say I'd say that's pretty. Uh, I'd say that's pretty accurate. And in the column that you were quoting, getting real about rural America, Krugman writes, "What can be done to help rural America? We can and should make sure that all Americans have good health care, access to good education, and so on wherever they live." I think he has this copy and pasted somewhere, so you can just enter it into every article he has. <laughs> We can try to promote economic development in lagging regions with public investment, employment subsidies, and possibly job guarantees. But experience abroad isn't encouraging. West Germany, remember West Germany? I think that was 30 years ago. West Germany invested $1.7 trillion in an attempt to revive the former East Germany, more than $100,000 per capita. Yet the region is still lagging with many young people leaving. So massive investment, which it sounds like Krugman actually supports. Here, Krugman says it might not work at all if history is our guide. So do we know how to stop the powerful economic forces that Krugman sees as hurting Appalachia? Because it sounds like Krugman has surrendered to these forces. What is Krugman missing 
when it comes to helping rural communities that have been ravaged economically? Well, you've got to, you have to seize power. I mean, I don't really know how else to put it. You need a massive redistribution of wealth. I mean, you need several things. You need a massive redistribution of wealth. Because, look, there's wealth in the county that I live in. It's just concentrated at, in literally one or two capitalists. Um, you, need a, you need a massive redistribution of wealth, which means confronting power. And you need worker and citizen uh, control over the allocation of resources, the distribution of resources. Um, and that's about autonomy. And, again, that has nothing... Uh, because Krugman's not interested in confronting power, not even in, in, interested in analyzing it, he's, uh, he, can't, he can't see that. And, I, and this is why I put, I pointed out in the article that the only thing that can sort of break the sort of stranglehold of the sort of conservative agenda of social control on the rural areas is a sort of nationwide political movement based in the interest of what I said earlier, the service industry workers, the care industry workers, and the tenants. You know, and I, and I think that that's, that's why. You have to have these workers in, in, uh, in these economies deciding how resources are distributed and having autonomy over their lives. And um, that's, you know, I, I mean, I guess I'm a, obviously I'm a communist, so I think differently than Kirkman, uh, who is just a liberal and thinks that you can just give people things and then their th- lives, will, lives will be better. I don't believe that. I think that people have to have autonomy and control over, over themselves and over their communities and their lives. Well, and that means confronting power. Uh, you write the question of why the rural working class often votes against its interests has been bugging liberals for a few decades now. And you can't really blame them. Democrats still hold uh, or held a lot of sway in rural America for the first half of the 20th century. But then things started to change. Neoliberal economics tore rural regions apart. Both jobs and people left in short order. Now those regions swing predominantly conservative, and liberals are left scratching their heads. Is the reason then that rural America left the Democratic Party because the Democrats left rural America by shifting to neoliberalism? I think that's a big reason, yeah. I mean, it's several things. It's, it's many things. The unions also, uh, you know... Is- abandoned rural America in many ways. Um, a lot of the sort of institutions of liberal progressive uh, power and control abandoned rural America. And that's, you know, because of neoliberal economics in many ways. And who stepped in? The conservatives. You know, that's, um, you know and, and it turns out that they've, uh, in the last sort of three or four decades, they have come up with some very... Um, profoundly effective means of controlling, uh, you know, power and ideological formation in a lot of these areas. And so, yeah, I think the liberals, um, it, it's, I guess it's more complicated than this, but yeah, they essentially abandoned a lot of rural America. But at the same time, and you know this, the Republicans and the Democrats basically have the same, pretty much the same economic policies. Sure, there are incremental differences between the two, but they both embrace neoliberalism. So when you're responding to that, I started wondering, you know, did, uh, because the Democrats abandoned the economic values and policies that helped rural America and shifted to neoliberalism, did that suddenly neuter the economic issues? And what Appalachians, what rural America is voting on, they're not voting against their best self-interest because 
both parties have, as far, as far as they're concerned, the same economic interests. They're only voting on the other aspects of it, the pro-family values. So did embracing neoliberalism by the Democrats lead possible Republican voters to finally embrace the conservative values of Republicans? Yeah, this is something that actually really fascinates me, and, and I'm not sure if I have a um, a fully articulated, you know, well thought out answer about it. I think that the thing is, um, a lot of so in the 60s and 70s, a lot of scholars were looking at Appalachia and they were saying, you know, this basically resembles the colonial model. Uh, you go in, you sort of set up um, institutional ideological control just to main, make sure that the resources continue to flow out of the um, economy, et cetera. Like Appalachia was forever called an internal colony because it had coal and, you know, it was basically ravaged like a colony. Well, I think that the biggest development in the last 30 or 40 years has been the, I guess, wedding of that sort of colonial model with the sort of culture wars, with the, uh, you know, basically, and it's like I said in the article, like, Coal, the resource itself, or oil, or timber, or whatever, has become synonymous with an entire program of, uh, you know, cultural values and political beliefs and everything. So it's like I said in the article, it's uh, heteronormative. It is, um, you know, all lives matter. It is, you know, it has this very sort of patriotic, revanchist uh, attitude associated with it. I think Krugman and these writers, they think that that is all of rural America. Again, like I said earlier, it's very well possible that most people in rural America believe that. Again, I don't think that's the case. The, the point is, is that it is very useful to these sort of ruling classes that that is the case. Because then, you know, then those things aren't challenged. If you don't challenge why we pull the stuff out of the earth and all the exploitation that comes uh, part with it, then you know, you, you're not going to challenge heteronormativity. You're not going to challenge patriarchy or any of these other uh, things that sort of keep us repressed and keep us uh, hating ourselves and, and, and everything else. And, um, and, and so that's a very useful, that's a very advantageous situation for the conservatives. Um, you know, and again, because the liberals haven't mounted any challenge to that in several decades, yeah, it's basically unchallenged. The conservatives don't have any. Um, they, they don't have any sort of competition in that regard. But they just have people like Kirkman who just whine about it on the pages of the New York Times, but don't do anything about it. When it comes to Appalachia, as you write, as a supply source of raw materials—food, oil, natural gas, coal, timber, and other resources—to keep these goods flowing out of rural areas and profit flowing into capitalist pockets, free-thinking dissent within the extractive regions must be squashed at all costs. Is that any more the case than other industries? Does resource extraction need to squash dissent any more than any other economic sector? Um, that's a great question. Um, I've, my entire life, I've lived in a city for four years. <laughs> that was Austin, Texas. And uh, I guess the sort of biggest economies there are the university and the tech industry. Um, I've not noticed anywhere near that kind, that level of indoctrination when it comes to the tech industry, but I'm sure that people listening to this would object and say, oh, well, it actually it happens in Silicon Valley and other places around it. Um, so I'm not entirely sure if it's, if it's sort of universal. 
Um, but I do know that, you know, as I pointed in the article, there are all kinds of examples of how this plays out. Um, the industries themselves, uh, you know, will go into schools and set up programs to make sure that, uh, you know, they're intervening in the sort of understanding of scientific issues on, on teenagers, you know, when it comes to coal, burning coal versus gas. And, you know, the example I used in the piece was my school fight song, which just quite literally just extols, you know, the values and the greatness of oil and how it's sort of, uh, you know, your identity is basically subsumed inside of it. And, um, and, and that's because there's a lot at stake there. I mean, um, resource extraction is a very labor-intensive, dangerous industry. It's not like the tech industry where we've, um, outsource the danger of an exploitation of assembling those products to other countries. The resource extraction in America happens in America, and those are dangerous, violent jobs. I mean, we still put people in mountains to get a rock out that we burn for energy. Uh, and the same thing for uh, oil drilling and, and um, farming and all these other things. And so, um, you know, there's all kinds of sort of, uh, there's a lot at stake there. And to, and and that, su- that kind of work sucks. And to make sure that people don't whine about it and complain and then start unionizing and then start forming coalitions with other sectors of the working class in those rural economies, conservatives have to make sure that everybody shuts up and that everything is just going, moving along smoothly and that, oh, this is actually the way things are supposed to be. I got my hand blown off in a valve. That's, that's, that's fine. You know what I mean? So they have to make sure that that people don't challenge their sort of hegemony and, and authority. So this is from your school fight song. I just wanted to share this with everybody because it is both hilarious and frightening. This is from Hobbs High School in New Mexico where uh, you went to school, um, where Terrence went to school. It goes like this. In the West, mid-oil derricks, friendly flares to view, stands the best of noble high schools. Hobbs High, here's to you. Watch the night flares send a radiance and a grand hello, golden land of all that's worthwhile. Hobbs, New Mexico, and your school colors were black and gold meant to evoke the image of oil. Primary education public schools have been criticized for their teaching of history as patriotic myth or for not being patriotic enough, but I have not seen the same kind of or level of criticism toward the impact big business has on our learning K through 12. What do you think has a greater impact on our foundational learning? conservative corporations or patriotic politics, or are they related in some way when you're going to school in rural America? I think they're related, and I think that's part of the, the sort of overall theory I'm driving at, which is that you can very easily fuse together the sort of um, corporate America agenda with the patriotism and with the sort of cultural values of what it means to be a good citizen, a good white heteronormative um, you know, citizen, and uh, yeah, no, I, I think that that's it's it's a whole. It's like I said in the essay, it's an entire program of ideological indoctrination. It's not explicit. It's not like the school board meets and says, "Let's you know, let's figure out a way to you know keep people subservient and not questioning their circumstances." It's more of a soft indoctrination program. Uh, you know, it's it's not blatant authoritarianism. It's you know, in this country, we have this hilarious sort of um, 
complex about, uh, you know, authority and, and don't tread on me and everything. And so the conservatives have to, like, they have to cast in a few things. They can't just <laughs> make it obvious that they're indoctrinating us. So. They can't make it obvious that you're, they're indoctrinating you, but you write, if you live in a rural community, extractive, that is, is one of, with extractive uh, resources, uh, or not, you are likely confronted every day with an onslaught of images, dogmas, and various cultural reinforcements regarding your role within the national social structure. So it seems like politics then permeates everything. Is everything openly political in rural America if you pay attention? Because conservatives often lament the politicization of everything and anything and they'll say that you know this university's uh, women's studies program that must be somehow some sort of political thing or whatever you know they're always trying to find politics on the left how politicized have conservatives made rural life well i think that it's um it's incredible to politicize and everything about it. Um, you know, when I was growing up, you know, I grew up, I think the first sort of um, event I remember in my sort of ideological formation was 9-11. I was 13 years old. And so when, in middle school, like, the, um, I mean, I can't even describe, like, we live in a very fascist society at the moment, right? At, the 2000s were incredible. And then it's crazy to me that no one talks about this. Like, I, I, I don't know if I'll ever see another sort of moment like that that was as fascist as the 2000s were, and especially in rural America. I mean, I, of course, I didn't grow up anywhere else, and so I have no idea what it was like growing up in Chicago in the 2000s, for example. But, uh, you know, in my high school, you could get attention for wearing a, a, a shirt that criticized George Bush or something like that. It was um, it was a very uh, sort of suffocating time, and I think that's what radicalized me. It's what radicalized a lot of people from um, the place places like where I'm from. Um, yeah, I think a lot of the aspects are are political, but the weird the the weird thing about it is that um, it's be, it's because there, like I was saying earlier, because there's not as big of a middle class. Um, there's also that also means that you can't question things as much. They'll sort of push you out of the herd. You'll just be sort of filtered out. Uh, you're sort of like in the way that you know Chomsky described the media in the '80s. Like your ideas and uh, beliefs, if they're dissenting or whatever, you'll be sort of just pushed out um, softly. And um, and and so yeah, it's, it's you really have to examine it. You really have to like sort of peel back the layers and look at it. But uh, obviously. Um, all aspects of it are, are political, for sure. And you write that we know rural radicalism exists, and we know that the rural working class can exert a great deal of leverage on entrenched power structures. The statewide teacher strikes in predominantly rural West Virginia serve as the best recent example. Our power is growing. It may take some time and experimentation, but conservatives will not reign unchallenged in rural America for eternity. We've never stopped fighting back. To what extent are liberals like Krugman allowing conservative power to go unchallenged in Appalachia by blaming Appalachians themselves for their situation? Well, they're not looking at power. You know, a lot of what happened in 2016 
uh, could be sort of explained and uh, foreshadowed if they had actually been look, looking at power and analyzing it and its sort of manifestations in rural places. Um, but they, for the last, you know, 40 years or so, they've clung to this sort of cultural uh, culture of poverty idea and uh, the whole idea of psychoanalyzing rural people. And, you know, I don't think Krugman would never probably, I don't think he's stupid enough to just come out and say flatly, like, these people are dumb and they vote against their interests and all this. But uh, that's basically what he's implying. And so, yeah, I think that, like, if you're concerned with um, winning <laughs> elections, not to, not to mention just gaining power in general, but just at the bare minimum, winning elections, you've got to understand how power uh, you know, manifests in, in these places and what the political economy of those communities looks like. You're not going to do that if you just, like I said, just keep, you know, half-assing an article here and there and passing it off. Kirkman's uh, probably, his his issue is he's just gotten lazy. He makes like six figures. <laughs> so, he, I mean, he can't really blame him, I guess. I mean, uh, he's just sort of half-assing it. He doesn't get, he just gets paid too much. He's over, over you know, overpaid. And <laughs> he doesn't have much of an incentive to actually dig into what's going on out in the heartland or whatever. Uh, it's much easier for him to just, collect the paycheck, you know, half-ass an article every now and then. <laughs> I like that math. Uh, we've been speaking with writer Terrence Ray, who posted the article of The Baffler, Get Real, What Liberals Like Paul Krugman Still Don't Understand About Rural America. You can follow Terrence on Twitter at Terrence Ray. That's T-A-R-E-N-C-R-A-Y. Terrence is a writer living in Whitesburg, Kentucky, and is co-host of the podcast Trillbilly Workers Party. You can follow Terrence's podcast at Trill the Trillbillies at the Trillbillies on Twitter. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, where our audience is going to hate your response. You write, so what exactly is Cole supposed to signify here? Cole is noble, masculine, important work here in Appalachia. Cole believes in God, country, and sacrifice. It's not queer but unrepentantly straight. It believes that all lives matter. The natural resource itself, the one that puts food on your table, is the pillar that upholds the edifice of belief. Cole upholds the natural order of things. So, as coal is cut, Terrence, how much is white privileged undermined, white privilege undermined and challenged? Is being anti-coal an attack on white supremacy especially in rural America? I don't think so. I do think that, and, you know, this comes from years of organizing in the environmental movement and being perceived as being anti-coal miner if you were pro-environmental controls on, on coal mining. And um, so, it, you know, I think that what you have to say is that like like anything else like the mechanization of the coal industry puts people out of work um it it also simultaneously exploits people poisons our lives uh warms the earth and is making everything uh much worse uh it's making it hell <laughs> for example um it's not that being anti-coal is being anti-white supremacy but being anti the powers that exploit coal miners 
and being anti the industry that indoctrinates people to um, support that very industry um, to the detriment of their own health and well-being. I think that's why anti-white supremacy, for sure. Um, and that's part of what it means to be a, a leftist and a communist. It's like we want to dismantle all these things. We want to uproot the society from its very lowest depth, and uh, and and that's what um, that's why I'm I'm about. That's what we're trying to do at the Trillbillies. Terrence, I really appreciate being on the show. Everybody should go listen to the Trillbillies podcast. Terrence, I really appreciate you being on, and enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you for having me on, Chuck. It's been great. Fantastic. I'm going to bug you in the future and have you back on. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. During a moment of truth in a few minutes. I know this is hard to believe, but Jeff actually sees God. We don't need music. You can rate This Is Hell on Facebook. And after 195 respondents so far, we have the highest. I'm take that back. 198 respondents so far. We have the highest rating possible, or at least I thought. But... Facebook changed their metric or the way that they read the algorithm, and despite 197 people giving us a five-star rating and one person giving us a zero-star rating, and I say one other, I guess, giving us a four-star rating, for whatever reason, we now have 4.99999 out of five stars because someone gave us zero stars because they actually believed we're a front for Russia. Seriously. A front for Russia. Have you seen my bank account? I wish I was the front for Russia. That would be great. If you rate This Is Hell and leave a comment about us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, we'll read your rating and comment on air. Dean gave us five stars and writes, I recommend that people listen to This Is Hell. Very succinct, Dean. Jeff also gave us five stars and says Chuck obviously makes this program for thinking people who refuse to be so intellectually lazy as to accept only opinions that fit within their comfort zones. His superb interview skills only make me wish I could talk up people with such a plum. P.S. Still hope to hear an in-depth analysis, please tell me if I missed it, of how Building 7 at the World Trade Center totally collapsed on its own footprint. Well, thanks for the five-star rating, Jeff. But, sorry, no in-depth analysis is needed on why Building 7 collapsed the way it did. It's just engineering and physics. Clarence also gave us five stars and left this comment. Ah, the sexy voices and the incredibly insightful hangover tips. You, too, can go to Facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio and give us five stars so I don't have to. And if you do and leave a comment, I'll read yours on air. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, Jeff Dorchin sees God during the moment of truth. And we have people to thank for sharing the show online, people to thank for supporting This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell, Leo O'Connell and Alex Jerry. Live from Hangover Country, This Is Hell. Do you guys have Jeffy on the line? Yes, I do. All right, let's hear Jeffy. Wrong intro. Sorry about that. 
That's all right. You're learning, Leo. Don't worry. Here we go. Gods of Infinite Promise. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Spread the word to all the venture capitalists you know. I have the secret to eternal youth, immortality, invulnerability, invisibility, time travel, instantaneous transport, and control of all matter and energy. Right now it's in the secret idea development stage, but just a few billion dollars will turn me and a few lucky dupes into the saviors of humanity and make us wealthy beyond the limits of human earthly reason. An investment of a million dollars will buy you nice try status, and you will receive a promissory coupon for an unlimited number of rides in the Mach 99 fat tire stroller to oblivion, $2 million gets you twice as many rides, and so on until math runs out. An investment of $400 million will get you on the board of directors, 150% of voting shares, and an invisible royal garment. I can take just a drop of your blood and turn it into enough loaves and fishes to feed a great multitude. Now is our time, the time of infinite promise and zero fulfillment. We shall be gods, promising good fortune and ultimately heaven, but delivering only that which a mythical savior who lacks actual existence can deliver. We promise you high-speed rail, but we can't even deliver potable water to people in Michigan, a state surrounded by the Great Lakes. We promise you 100% surveillance, but we can't even give you justice when cops are caught on video killing your children. We are the best and brightest. When it comes to promising, we can do it all. When it comes to luxuries and miraculous sights, sounds, flavors, and sensations, we procure them for ourselves. And when it comes to solving the actual problems afflicting humanity, we, just like God, do absolutely nothing Almost as if we didn't exist. But we do. We are the living church. Glories of architecture, marble, and gold. The paragon of all the arts and sciences. And you can visit us long enough to worship and drop a few coins in our collection plate. After all, the people create the gods and feed them with their blood and money. You know who contributed the altarpiece? Henry Kissinger. Just think, you could pray to a sculpture that Henry Kissinger paid for, the man who won the Nobel Peace Prize for killing the greatest number of Indo-Chinese in a single war. We have all the money. You want some? You'll have to make it worth our while. Shine some shoes. We'll pay you as little as possible. You know what the ideal wage is from our point of view? Zero dollars. That's what we call a perfect wage. If we could show that we paid all our workers exactly zero dollars, our stock price would go through the roof. It would fly through the roof and up and up an infinite distance. This is my dream as an entrepreneur. 
to create a company so dazzlingly new and world-changing that all the money I accumulate will rise up to me like prayers. Money and love and dreams will lift me above all fear and need, and I will dwell forever in the sun, out of reach of the sorrows of this world. Only the most beautiful music, played by the most masterful artists, will shimmer around my ears, and only the most pure and sublimely prepared food from the most fetishistic farmers, brewers, bakers, gatherers, or vintners will pass between my lips." With noble sadness will I look down and observe all the violence, deprivation, and depravity, the follies of you, humankind, about which I can only do my tiniest part, because were I to do more, I would deny myself something, and that can never be. Beings who respect themselves never deny themselves anything, because they love themselves, and that is above all the goal to love the self, to shower love upon oneself. That is why you suffer, puny humanity. You don't love yourselves enough. You haven't found something you're passionate about and pursued that with every ounce of strength as an act of love for the self. No wonder you're always killing each other, forced to drink poison water, lacking quality schools, unable to access medicines you need to live. People who love themselves will always find a way, but not you. It's no wonder you don't love yourselves. You're weak. I hope I've shown you the true way now with this little sermon of mine. Learn to love yourselves. Learn to fix what's lacking in yourselves. That's what's lacking. Whatever you do, don't try to dismantle the church or dethrone the gods. The gods cannot be pulled down. Or at least that's what we'd like you to believe. Please believe us. Please us by believing. Believe. Believe. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. You sound great. You sound fantastic, dude. You're, are you using? So do you. Okay. So do you. And can I tell you something? Do you, you wait, know what wait, you sound do, like? Do you hear a big echo? I do hear a bit of an echo. Yeah, you're okay. going to need to put some blankets around there. No, we got uh, soundproofing coming in this week. Somebody was breathing near your mic at one point too. Maybe oh, it was you. Could have been. Oh. And you know, the, you know, you sound like uh, uh, Sly and the Family Stone. You know that song, "Stay." If you want me to stay, I'll be around today yes. to be available for you to see. Yeah. <gasps> he always, they always get that inhale on yeah. that. You can hear Sly going <gasps> before his next one. <laughs> so you think it's the same thing? It's beautiful. Right. Maybe it's because we both have. The I same think you cockroached lungs. I too. think. He, I think you both have similar mouths. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I, I can actually picture you guys kissing. I think it'd be nice. <laughs> All right, Jeffy. Until yeah. next, next time, stay beautiful. Okay, you too. Thank you. Live from the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism is all our pimp, this is hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become this is hell's pimp, support this is hell by going to thisishell.com and click on support. When you do, we will send you a gift you can pick from at our site. Again, thisishell.com. And then click on support. Thanks this week goes to the tithing commitment of John and Kilter. Thanks to Alfred, who wants a mug and gets one at a discounted donation level. Exclusive for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. Thanks to Donna and Kurt's very generous support. Donna and Kurt write, Dear Chuck, Alex, et al. I think that's Leo. Been wanting to subscribe on Patreon, but this past year was tight. So you are getting a portion of our tax refund now. Would you send a t-shirt, men's size, extra large? Just one and keep the change. Any chance you can get that to us before April 16th, a birthday? 
Thanks. We love you guys, Donna and Kurt. The shirt was sent out last Saturday. My girlie actually stood in line at the post office for 45 minutes on a Saturday afternoon, a day off. So thanks to her. And happy birthday to Donna or Kurt or whoever's birthday it is. This is hell where we put people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model and actually pretty stupid. But anyway, speaking of our horrible business model, where we stupidly put people before profits, we also want to thank new subscribers for joining us on Patreon this week. Thanks to Michael K., Andrew B., Garrett L., I think that's the Garrett who's the postal worker who joined us for office hours a few weeks ago, Zach B., and Sarah S. Office hours are happening in exactly 90 seconds at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. And don't worry, they're not going to last just 90 seconds. It's going to go until I am probably blackout drunk. So I'd say 6.30. I'm going for two and a half hours from now. Office hours happening right now. Drop by, drink, hang out, watch me drink, get some free. This is hell. Subvertising stickers and free show-related books. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, the bar downstairs from where I am sitting right now. But as we are done with this week's show, we are running down there real quick right now. So if you are listening on Patreon, drop by and join us in celebrating our very first ever live recording of This Is Hell at our new studio, or anywhere for that matter. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell. Leo O'Connell and Alex Jerry. Uh, any idea of who's going to be on the next show, Leo or Alex? Any clue whatsoever? I don't, but let me get Alex on. <laughs> All right. Alex, do you have any clue? Uh, Alex, do you have... Hey, sorry, I got my kid with me. That's Jim okay. Bendel will be on to talk about his paper on deep climate adaptation, and Anna Merlan will be on to talk about her book, Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theorists and Their Surprising Rise to Power. Where the coolest musicians get their news. Hello, Lee. This is hell. I want to thank all of our guests on this week's show. Thanks to Black Agenda Reports' Glenn Ford, Max Zerngast, who is going to have his hearing tomorrow on being, he was jailed, he was found, he was arrested and jailed for being a member of a terrorist organization, which is not listed as a terror group and isn't organized and that they haven't existed for over 20 years. So I want to thank Glenn Ford and Max Zerngast. Uh, Max told us about what happened in the recent Turkish elections. I want to thank Leo and Alex for producing this week's show. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for doing the moment of truth. And thanks to our guest, Terrence Ray, who wrote the article, Get Real, What Liberals Like Paul Krugman Still Don't Understand About Rural America. And Shireen Al-Adeni, who wrote the In These Times article, As War on Yemen Hits the Four-Year Mark. Here's a brief history of U.S. involvement. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's This Is Hell, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor, and my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.